I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we take the words off of a page and we make them hot. We are two unaccredited people who did nothing but buy a book. And I like to remind everybody that we have no authority here. We are just people who give opinions. And if you agree and enjoy our opinions, follow along. And if you don't, form your own opinions. It's as deep as that. We have no government position. What we say and think has literally no bearing on anybody who doesn't allow it to have bearing on them. We have not been elected by anyone but ourselves. And by you for participating. Exactly. This is our last week stationed strong in New York City because, baby, we are hitting the road. If you live in Austin and Dallas, I will see you next week. If you live in Seattle and Portland, I'll see you in like a week and a half and Dublin and London, we are coming at you in the beginning of April. I am so fucking excited for all of these shows. It is going to be so much fun. If you've already got your tickets, I cannot wait to see you. If you don't have your tickets yet, well, baby, step on it because these puppies are like 80% sold out at least. New York is sold out. One of our Dublin and one of our London shows are all sold out. So, you know, I wouldn't snooze on this. Let me tell you who has never slept in her life. Paris Hilton. Paris Hilton. But before we get into her, Ashley, if you were a celebrity and you were to write a memoir, what would you call last week's chapter? I would title last week's chapter, Ashley, you're not that busy. (laughs) I have a lot of travel coming up. Last week I was out of town and I'll be out of town a lot in the next couple weeks. And I keep on acting like it is handcuffing me in some way. I'm like, what me make plans? How can I make dinner plans on one night when I'm going to be traveling a bunch of other nights that aren't the night we're talking about? Like I feel like I am an anxious traveler. So I get like drowned in the prospect of having travel coming up and I need to just live my life like a normal person. People travel, people go places, people are busy on some days and free on other days. And sometimes when I have a hard week coming up, I'm like, well, I have to just stay inside and hunker down because it'll be my last day to relax before I have five days of being busy, it's not that That's hard. That's just a work week. <laughs> it's not that hard. And I think I need to get a little bit of a grip on it. I think coming back after being out of town this weekend, I was like, oh, time passed. But time isn't over. That wasn't the last days of time that exist. Claire, what is your week's chapter titled? I'd call it, well, hoping for the best. Okay. <laughs> because right now I'm in a waiting period on a bunch of contracts that I don't know how they're going to turn out, but I'm hoping for the best. We're moving. The decision was made to move. However, it is not finalized that we're allowed to move into our new place. I did, however, rent out the apartment from underneath my feet. (laughs) Somebody is moving into my apartment April 1st, and I can't live there anymore. And I I hope I have somewhere to live in April 1st. We'll find out soon. Every day I wake up and I'm told that the email confirming things will come today. And every day I'm told, you know what? Maybe it'll come tomorrow. And I just have to say, hopefully it comes. Hopefully I have somewhere to live on April 1st. believe how fast things go where right now you're expecting that you're supposed to move Friday and it's Tuesday. I'm hoping to move Friday. And then the other thing I'm waiting on is I found this like bar lounge in Greenpoint that I want to do like my wedding after party at. And I have been waiting to hear back from them. Nobody has worked harder on anything than these people have worked on coming up with a contract to do what I feel like should be pretty standard business. (laughs) It is just a small bar that I'm trying to rent out for the after party. It's been six weeks of them being like, we're still working on the contract. We'll get it to you by Monday. It was supposed to be here yesterday. Didn't pop up. I guess they could be chiseling it in stone. (laughs) What if they're engraving it on sheet metal? I'm scared they're not going to get it to me until the day before the wedding. And then they're going to have like jacked up the price. So I'm going to be like, well, 
that didn't work out at all. But so I'm just sitting here, just hoping one day all these contracts come in and I have somewhere to get married and I have somewhere to live. And if not, we'll figure it out. Can I say something? Me, that me and Matt could live with you. No, I have no space for you, Mac and Bug and me. Bug and you share a bed. Me and Mac could share the couch. I guess that's true. Continue. I don't know where you put your stuff though. I'm really anxious thinking about the clutter already. <laughs> I was going to say, I think it's to me more important that you guys have somewhere to live than we have somewhere to have a party. I think it's an important party, but. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I would definitely say there's a different level of importance, but there's an equal level of, are you going to email me back or no? <laughs> Do you know who would actually disagree with me and says nothing is more important than the party? Paris Hilton. <laughs> This is actually our second ever Paris Hilton memoir, which I'm excited to do. And our third ever Paris Hilton episode, because back in the early days of this podcast, we did an episode just on her documentary. We decided if you self-published a documentary and we watched it with the captions on, that's essentially a memoir. <laughs> this week, we are diving back into the only official Paris memoir there is, Paris the Memoir. I will say, I don't think I could have asked for much more from this book. I liked it a lot and I thought it was really good. And I actually thought it was written the way it should be. And I thought it encapsulated everything I was looking for. However, it starts rough. So I think the thing is Paris wants to be smart and is smart. Me and Ashley are in agreement that being famous for being famous for 30 years is quite the feat. I do think Paris is married to this bimbo act she does. And so this book is interesting because it starts out so bimbo-y. And I think she's almost scared to be her real self at the beginning. So it starts out with her like bimbo-y character and then eases up as you go. And the prologue was nerve-wracking. The prologue is just a stream of thought of her kind of explaining the things that she's most known for and who she is and what she likes and her pack of dogs. And you're not even getting to the worst of it. The whole thing is about finding out she had ADD a couple of years ago or ADHD. She found out 20 years ago, but she didn't find someone who wanted to properly treat it until like a year and a half ago. And it's all about how she always felt so ashamed that she couldn't focus, but now she sees that living with ADHD is not being afflicted by it. It's having a superpower. And I'm like, girl, get off TikTok. I cannot, I'm sorry, you're 41. We cannot subscribe to this idea that having ADHD is like having cancer. The way it retrofits into every story of her life that she can't quite explain or she still carries shame about or she still feels misunderstood about, everything has an ADHD out throughout this entire book. And you're just like, okay, I believe that there are actions and situations from your childhood that would have been better understood had mental health been better understood and had ADHD been more discussed. But you can't sit here and be like, I wouldn't have snuck out of my house and partied until 7 a.m. every single day if I had been more understood. The way that she's like, maybe if someone had medicated me, I'm like, I actually don't think Adderall has ever stopped a party girl from being a party girl. I think if anything, it would have exacerbated the situation. I mean, this whole prologue is very much, I think, the Paris Hilton that she puts online that is fake, that is an artifice, that is a creation, that is like a bullshit social media star that is dying out today. She has this passage where she starts talking about skincare and she goes, skincare, seriously, if you take nothing else from my story, receive this. Skincare is sacred. That is not what this story is about. That's not what the story is about at all. Most women who did coke back in the 1990s looked beat by the mid-aughts. That was a strong deterrent for me. I won't say I've never tried it, but I wasn't about to sacrifice my complexion for it. Same with cigarettes. You may as well hit yourself in the face with a shovel. The idea that the reason she looks the way she looks is because of skincare after <laughs> she lived a life of being tortured as a teen, partying hard, drinking nonstop, doing drugs, never sleeping, traveling constantly, 
She's not putting on a fucking vitamin C and looking the way she looks. This is all bullshit. So this prologue comes off as the image that she wants to portray, which is like busy and buzzy, bubbly and fun and light. And it's who she wants to be. And the thing is, I think that because she has started to break from this mask that she created, there's this idea that there are two Parises and there aren't. There is a heightened version and there's like a real version. Because that's the thing is she would not have created this version of herself if that wasn't a thing that was inside of her. People are always like, oh, well, there's the public version and the private. It's the same with like Lala Kent being like there was Lala and Lauren from Utah. Like there's not. There is one person and there's a heightened version of that person that you are able to push out into the public for critique and exposure. They're not two different people. Also, to look back at an incredible character study of the social media impact that came out of the 1990s, the film The Mask. Yeah. What happens when you have a persona that you are playing more hours of the day than you're not? That persona becomes you and it gets stuck to you and it warps who you think you are and who you actually are. So this idea that there can be two people that you play all the time We learned it from Audrina's book. I think Audrina was the only person to not see what was happening. Playing a character of yourself for the public as a real life, it's going to have impacts and then you're going to lose the boundary. I just have to read this one quote real quick to get into how like cheesy and corny and nervous this prologue made me. Some of us have discovered that ADHD is our superpower. I wish the A stood for ass kicking. I wish the D stood for dope and drive. I wish the H suggested hell yes. (laughs) (laughs) What if that was what ADHD meant? Ass kicking, dope, <laughs> hell yes, drive. <laughs> and But then she has one last little thing in here. And she says, I've avoided talking about some of these issues for decades. I'm in an issue avoiding machine. I learned from the best my parents. Nikki says mom and dad are the king and queen of sweeping things under the rug. I love my mom and I know she loves me, but still we've put each other through hell and can't squeeze out more than a few words on certain topics. It's going to be hard for her to read this book. I won't be surprised if she puts it on a shelf for a while or forever. And that's okay. Dude, it's not okay. I really need Kathy to read this. And she says, I'm super protective of my family and my brand, the businesswoman who grew out of a party girl and the party girl who still lives inside the businesswoman. So it scares me to think about what people will say, but it's time. There are so many young women who need to hear this story. I don't want them to learn from my mistakes. I want them to stop hating themselves for mistakes of their own. I want them to laugh and see that they do have a voice and their own brand of intelligence and girl fuck fitting in. So I think in those last couple of chapters, you see the actual meat of what this book is going to be about. But oh boy, does she make you work for a couple pages to get there. And then the first chapter is what the prologue should have been. The first chapter is about her 21st birthday. She decided to go skydiving the morning after her 21st birthday. She talks about how she is a grade A certified professional partier. Partying is an area of expertise and for me, a marketable skill developed over a lifetime of practice. She talks about how when she went skydiving, she was like, wait, was this a huge mistake? There was a door that said, this door must remain closed. And they pop the door open. It feels like your head's getting sucked out. And then you free fall and it feels amazing. And then you skydove. And she says, this book is going to be like that door. This door must remain closed. But brace yourselves. We're about to pry it open. I will also say these first two chapters had more name dropping than I've ever seen in a book before in a way that almost made me sick and annoyed. And then very quickly, she drops it. It's funny how you come in with the old Paris and then by the time you get to the acknowledgement and the conclusion of this book, she's like a straightforward, well thought out person. Yeah. And I wonder how intentional that was. In this book goes from hectic to deeply streamlined and chronological. It's very readable. It's very much done in her voice, but in a way that doesn't feel childish and put on. Like, it doesn't feel like one of those teen books that's written in AIM speak. Like, LOL, you 
letter number two. <laughs> but it's straightforward. And, and I guess my question about how much of it was on purpose is like, did she do that out of fear that if she started intense and started straightforward that people wouldn't read it? Or is that journey through this book supposed to mirror her journey of finding self? And uh, I would love to ask Paris. <laughs> I would also love to know. I was born in New York City on February 17th, 1981. So growing up, she was obsessed with animals. She is the oldest of four kids. One of the big bombs that was dropped for me personally in this book was finding out that her little sister Nikki is short for Nikolai, a name I've never heard for a girl before. A name I've never even really heard before at all. She grew up with a lot of animals. She had pet rats. Pet rats, pet ferrets. She was a big goat girl. She has always loved animals. And when she was little, she wanted to be a veterinarian. She pulls the line that I, if I could go to Congress and have one law passed, it would be, I've always been shy, an extroverted introvert, overcompensating with performative social butterfly behavior. I don't believe in that. Real shy people don't somehow manage it. Well, I guess the thing is that everyone wants to classify themselves into extrovert and introvert when there are just like people with social anxiety. And I do believe some people have like more of a tendency to want to be out in public and some people have more of a tendency to want to be inside and wanting to be out and about but still having social anxiety isn't a unique and undefined trait. It's just common. Anyway, she does name drop throughout this entire book. She talks about growing up, her nanny, a woman named Bethany Frankel, <laughs> who was friends with her aunt Kyle, would take care of them and they would have a lot of fun. Kyle's not that much younger than Paris. So she was like a fun, cool older sister, almost more than an aunt. She says, mom, Kim and Kyle presented a fabulous model for sisterhood dynamics, mm -hmm. which makes me laugh because if you watch Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, you know that famously there, it's always 2v1. There's always a sister who is being iced out of the group for years on end. <laughs> they do not have fabulous sister dynamics. They are always at each other's throats. Her best friend was Nicole Richie, but she ended up getting, she doesn't really get into this, but she got kicked out of her school in seventh grade. So she and Nicole had kind of a long distance friendship. She was not invited back for the eighth grade year. There's like a lot of little asides in here. She actually did not coin the term that's hot. Nikki did. And she started saying it at school and everyone caught on. And later in the book, she's like, and once The Simple Life came out, just like in sixth grade, everyone started copying my phrase. <laughs> that made a lot of sense to me that it was actually Nikki's phrase because I will die on the hill that sliving is not a catchy phrase. Sliving it, is bad. I hate sliving. It's so forced and obvious. It's so contrived. But that's hot really rolled off your tongue and came into the vernacular. And it makes sense. It didn't come from the mind of sliving. <laughs> yeah, I do think Paris is not great at making new things up, but she is great at seeing something cool and recognizing that it's cool and bringing it into the mainstream. I think she's great at being magnetic. Yeah. Which is hard. As someone not magnetic who would love to be. <laughs> <laughs> so she gets kicked out of Buckley and she gets sent to a Catholic school where she goes for two years. Her and Nicole stay best friends and she kind of has a life where her parents are super strict. She's not allowed to dress up. She's not allowed to wear makeup, not allowed to have a boyfriend, not allowed to go out. But even from seventh, eighth grade, her and Nicole are always scheming on how they can sneak out, how they can kiss boys. At one point, she gets grounded from Nicole. They're on vacation together in Vegas, all the families for New Year's Eve. And both sets of parents are like, you're not allowed to hang out anymore. You're bad influences on each other. I will say one thing that I think she's great at is I think she inherently has an incredible understanding of PR and branding. And although I like this book and I found it to be vulnerable in the parts that were important to be vulnerable, the way she's still able to sell the idea of her as a pop culture icon, she's like, Nicole Richie and I were ride or die from our terrible twos and we'll stay that way until the world ends. 
That is simply not true. We all know that they weren't friends for like years. I don't think Paris even went to Nicole's wedding. When is the last time Paris was invited to hang out with you and Cameron Diaz and the Maddens? <laughs> yeah, or Sarah Foster and Cameron Diaz. I mean, we can let go of the version of who you were. So she turns 14 in 1995. She's in eighth grade and she's like, I'm a tomboy, but I just certainly didn't think of myself as a child. I had a beeper in my very own phone line. She was popular. She was cool. And she went to this super Catholic school, but was always figuring out ways to roll over her skirt and be a little bit cuter. She was always sneaking out. She was really, she knew how to get out of any room, anytime, anywhere. She would crawl out her window. She was very unafraid to just hop a fence. And she goes on a whole rant about, she's like, to this day, I can probably hop any fence. (laughs) So she obviously was the kind of 13-year-old girl who was like maturing faster. I think in that age, like when you hit puberty ranges. And, but the problem with her family was they were not willing to have any real conversations with her. They were never say anything that's difficult, push everything under the rug, You can't hurt somebody if you don't acknowledge you did it. If you don't say it, it didn't happen. And she says it's problematic when girls go into that exploratory phase feeling secretive and ill-informed. If the message you send kids is, we don't talk about such things, then guess what? Your kids move towards adulthood with the idea that being an adult means keeping secrets. The nuns didn't teach us anything about reproductive health in biology class, and we certainly didn't cover Lolita in English. So there is a handsome teacher at the school who she calls Mr. Abercrombie, and he is in charge of every year crowning someone finest girl. Like in the yearbook. So at the end of seventh grade, he calls her the finest girl. And she feels validated by it. She feels excited. Everyone has a crush on Mr. Abercrombie. He literally says, I've got a crush on you. He said, flashing a flirty smile. At one point, they exchange numbers and they start talking on the phone for hours every night. And then one day he says, I'm outside, come out. And she climbs out her window. She goes to meet him. They kiss in his car and then her parents show up and he like takes off with her in the car they just drive around and he's like fuck my life is over I'm ruined and she doesn't know what to do and she's just sitting there and then he like drops her off and just kicks her out of the car and she's still like but I thought we had a special fling like why are you treating me like this my parents burst into my room beyond furious both of them screaming at me there were too many words to sort out a solid wall of rage But they don't say anything to the school. They're mad at her, but they don't do anything about it. And they're mad at her. The school year was almost over, but the last month or so was fraught with drama at school and home. I never told a soul, but somehow people seemed to know. Maybe I imagined it, but things felt differently. He was still Mr. Abercrombie, and I was no longer the finest girl. I was the Shannon Doherty of Catholic school. Everyone loved to hate me. Nothing I did was right. For 25 years, I framed this episode in my mind as my first kiss, because even though it wasn't my first kiss, it made all the kisses that came before it seem like the kisses I gave my ferrets. I never allowed myself to talk or even think about what it was or why I climbed out the window to kiss that stupid pedophile. It took me decades to actually speak the word, pedophile. Casting him in this role of child molester meant casting myself in the role of victim, and I just couldn't go there. She also has this quote that I like. Mr. Abercrombie made me believe that I was rare and precious, and you know what? I was. Every eighth grade girl is rare and precious. Every eighth grade girl is a treasure, like a priceless work of art. So you'd like to think that every eighth grade teacher will be like a security guard in that art gallery. He's not there to enjoy the beauty. He's there to protect it. He's there to enforce the rules. And rule number one is do not touch. Keep your fingers, lips, and man bits off the masterpieces. Because damage to that precious work of art can be hidden, but it can never be undone. It's infuriating to me now to think about how readily Marilyn and I both accepted the narrative about our physical appearance being the cause for someone else's criminal behavior. But how could we not? We're given a choice. A, you're a stupid child who was deceived, used, and thrown away like garbage. Or B, you're an irresistible siren whose beauty and allure have the power to change someone's mind, sway their soul, and alter their behavior. Given the choice between victim and influencer, Marilyn and I embraced our siren selves. So in response to this, this happens right before the end of eighth grade. 
Her parents do not call the school. They do not talk to her about it. They're just mad at her, and then they send her away. They send her to her maternal grandmother, Graham Cracker's house in Palm Springs, which if you watch R-H-O-B-H is a very important home. And they send her there for what they say will be the summer. And then her mom shows up at the end of the summer and enrolls her in ninth grade there. So she's like, okay, I guess I'm here longer. There is a lot about her life and location that she is just not even told about until the moment it's happening. And this is just the calmest one. So she's like, I don't know. I didn't think much of it. I didn't see it as a punishment necessarily. A lot of kids went to prep school. I just stayed out there with grandma and went to school there. But I was devastated to learn that my family had moved back to New York City without me. My grandma's house was definitely the nicest of all places that I could be imprisoned, but I was stuck living next to a golf course in the desert while my family took up residence in the Waldorf Astoria. That was a bitter pill to swallow. I was a 14-year-old kid. I wanted to be with my family. I needed my mom. I mean, I guess I don't know. I wasn't there, but it really feels like at no point was a conversation even thought to be had. They're just like, okay, well, she's being difficult. She sneaks out. We're just going to send her to her grandma's. We have three other kids and we're going to take those because they're easier. I was 14. If your 14-year-old kid walks around like a perfect little angel all the time, they should probably be tested for Lyme disease. I never had a drink of alcohol or tried any kind of drugs. I never smoked a cigarette. I didn't swear or lie much. And even though I had the kind of arguments teenage girls routinely have with their moms, I loved my parents and I knew they loved me. It just hurt me so deeply to think about my family having breakfast and hanging out in front of the TV, all the little things that were happening without me. I cried a lot. Wanting my mom, wanting my siblings, just wanting to go home. Apparently, there was just this allure about her from the time she was born that she was going to be a star. Her grandparents said to it. Her other grandparents were like, a psychic told me that you were going to be one of the most photographed women in the world. People always just were like, there's something about you that's going to be famous. And even her dad called her star as a nickname from like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, How I Wonder What You Are. But like that was just their nickname. She was star, a star. So she's with her grandma for ninth grade, and she actually has kind of a good year. Her grandma is way less strict than her mom is, which she finds helpful because she's, like, allowed to go out and hang out with people and go to the mall and have friends over. I feel like her grandma was way less strict about little things but had her set of rules that couldn't be broken. Yes. She gets her first real boyfriend who is Randy Spelling, you may remember as brother of one-time CNBC memoirist. And 10-time regular memoirist, Tori Spelling. But can I say, if you guys want us to do a summer of spelling, we will cover every (laughs) Tori Spelling book over the course of – just you say the word. I don't want to call Paris a bad child because I do think that that is a label that gets thrown on kids and ruins their lives sometimes. But she wasn't an easy teen. She definitely was always trying to figure out a way to sneak out. When she's like, I didn't lie much. It's like, okay, only on weekends when I wanted to do something. She was constantly lying about where she was and sneaking out and sleeping over at her boyfriend's house. She was lying a lot. And it is one of those things where you're like, yeah, I think she was acting out. It's within the realm of what you sign up for when you have a baby. I might have a daughter who wants to go to high school parties. She acted out, but not in a way that it feels like she seemed uncontrollable, unruly, and like she was hurting herself. But she was breaking a lot of rules constantly. One of these days, she's out with her friend, and they're at the mall, and there's these two boys who are in their 20s, early 20s, and I... Guess they see them all the time. Yeah. They always see these boys at the mall. So then the boys were like, oh, do you want to come hang out with us? And they were like, yeah, sure. You're our mall friends. So they go. He insists that Paris drink this drink. And she keeps on being like, I brought my own Sprite. I brought my own Sprite. And he's like, no, have this Kool-Aid. She drinks it. She gets roofied. Immediately. After that, I don't remember much. Broken pieces, fragments, echoes, white noise, black silence. I became aware of a crushing weight on me, suffocating me, cracking my ribs. I felt a jolt of panic and tried to get up, but the impulse was lost, as if something had severed my spinal cord. When I tried to scream, there was no air in my lungs. All that came out was a raspy, small, stop, what's happening? He clamped down hard on my face and whispered, it's a dream, it's a dream you're dreaming. So she wakes up a few hours later, and she like pukes in the bathroom, and she comes out, and her friend's gone. And he was like, yeah, she went to get food. I think you had some weird dreams, right? 
And finally she's like, yeah, I had a weird dream and he lets her go. And you know, everything about her changes. She becomes very depressed and her grandmother notices and is like, why are you so moody suddenly? But she never tells anybody what actually happened. She has a really hard time moving forward with just physical contact. Her boyfriend was pressuring her to have sex and she just couldn't bear someone touching her. So she has to get drunk in order to have her like proper virginity loss. I didn't let myself think about that day at the mall guy's apartment. I certainly didn't tell Randy about it. I never told Nikki. I never told mom. I didn't even tell Carter until recently. It happened so long ago and so much has happened since. What would be the point? To be honest, I've hardly thought about it since it happened. Thinking about it made me feel ruined and embarrassed and sick to my stomach. So I shoved it into the deepest, darkest corner of my mind. I refused to see how long the shadow it cast. But something strange has happened to me in the past few years, a shift in perspective maybe, or a shift in the way I process those memories I'd rather dismiss as a bad dream. You know how you can see a spider web lit up with dew? You see all the connections, cause and effect. You see life spinning outward and death caught in the sticky strands. There's a beauty in the design that brings the galaxy together, and I see myself. I see a star in the center of it. I'm not saying that the world revolves around me. I'm saying my world revolves around me, just as your world revolves around you. And we can't see how far enough to know how many worlds intersect. Things like that don't happen in a vacuum. Like if some woman had said something before it happened to me, maybe I could have been saved. And maybe if I had spoken up, I could save another woman. And she's like, I can't be silent anymore to preserve myself. I have to figure out if there's a way I can help. She talks a little bit more about how long and how difficult it was for her to find her own sexuality because of how often it's been taken from her. It's just been a joke in the media for so long, Paris Hilton and her sex tape. And she talks about the way that even Pink had a song about it saying outcast and girls with ambition, that's what I want to see, kind of making fun of Paris using her sex tape to get ahead. And she's like, I mean, I'm not mad at Pink, but the fact that that's the narrative about me, like why can't I be viewed as a girl with ambition who had things taken from her? The tape made when I was not legally old enough to be served a rum and coke in a bar was released and monetized against my will. But when that thing hit the internet, the full weight of the public outrage, scorn and disgust came down on me instead of on the massive crowd of people who bought and sold it, sparking a steady drip of fake Paris Hilton sex tapes and blazing a trail for a whole cottage industry that would ruin the lives of other vulnerable teenage girls in the future. I, because I was so young when it happened, I guess I was like nine when it came out. I had never really considered how truly young she was. Yeah. And now when I look back and I think about the fact that that was like a 19 year old. It's really appalling. A literal teenager. We'll get more into the sex tape later. But the fact that those kinds of things were just greenlit for joking about. Mm -hmm. And not just like joking, but hated. Yeah. And I feel like that's where it's like one thing to joke, but people were allowed to like throw absolute violence scorn. She talks about to this day, considering what she wears for certain occasions, because there is no circumstance that she might not have horror screamed at her on the street. Her grandmother gets breast cancer. And eventually at the end of that year, her parents let her come move back to New York City. And then she does this unfortunate thing where she starts to talk about NFTs, which is sprinkled throughout the book. There's a lot I like about this book. The top two things I can't stand about this book is all the talk of ADHD, which becomes a catch-all phrase for, I think, trauma. And then two, she's always like, and when I, in the future, when I was interested in technology and my NFTs, my metaverse, I'm like, please, 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 this is going to date this book so quick. And then the third thing is also how often she brings up Carter. Anytime something goes wrong, she's like... And now that I have Carter, this goes like this. And she like mentions the idea of psychology. And she's like, you know, Carter, my husband, he actually has a degree in psychology. Can I say that did not bother me, actually. And I I am number one boyfriend girl hater. Like I cannot stand it when a girl's like, well, my boyfriend said. But um, I think that she has never had a human being who actually knew anything about her. And so I don't just see Carter as like her husband. I see him as her first actual friend and yeah. like actual caregiver. He's literally the only person who's asked her 
what's going on in her head and heard the truth. So I'm kind of like, I get that you're really excited to have somebody be nice to you for the first time in your life. <laughs> she loves him. 2023 is absolutely zooming by. I cannot believe it is already mid-March. With 2023 well underway, don't wait any longer to set up your small business for success. Get ahead of the competition by using stamps.com to mail and ship. For 25 years, Stamps.com has been indispensable for over a million businesses. Get access to UPS and USPS shipping services that you need to run your business right from your computer at any time, day or night. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. And if you sell products online, Stamps.com seamlessly connects with every major marketplace and shopping cart. You can use Stamps.com to print postage wherever you do business. All you need is a computer and a printer. They even send you a free scale so you have everything you need to get started. And if you need a package pickup, you can easily schedule it through your stamps.com dashboard. I will be honest. I used to live right next to a post office. I would pop by there all the time to print postage, send a letter, just see what's going on. But now I live about a mile away from any post office. Trekking that far with a package, it is so annoying. It's such a hassle. And having stamps.com has made my life a million times easier. Set your business up for success started with stamps.com today. Sign up at stamps.com slash worm for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com slash worm. So she moves into the Waldorf Astoria with her family and she decides to give us the recipe for a Waldorf salad. And why? Because a Waldorf salad is basically ADHD in salad form. And I'm like, stop saying that. Stop saying ADHD. It's actually the most cohesive non-ADHD thing I've ever seen, the way that she's able to draw back comparisons to ADHD throughout the entire book. I've never seen such a strong through line in my life. So she moves with her family back to New York. She goes, I'm happy to be back in the arms of my perfectly imperfect family. I wouldn't have changed a thing about any of them. I was like, wee, thank you, God. Believe me, I was fully aware of how blessed and fortunate I was. That's something she does a lot in this book. She takes a lot of account of her privilege and a lot of responsibility of being like, I understand that this is, but in a way that I find effective. I think it makes her very likable. Yeah, she is keenly aware of everything that she needs to walk back. I mean, even early childhood stuff, at one point she overhears her mom reading her diary to Kim and Kyle. In like a mocking tone. They're like being like, oh, there's a boy I think is cute. Like her mom is making fun of her to her sisters. And she hears that and she's like, I understand it's not the worst thing in the world. But I'm like, I actually understand how it felt like the worst thing in the world. That yeah. is hard. Anyway, so she moves back to New York. Her and Nikki start stepping out on the town a little bit. They are literal teenagers. But they start getting kind of proposals for modeling contracts. I don't even know if Nikki is a teenager. If Paris is 15, then I think Nikki is 12. <laughs> yeah, okay. So they are kids bopping around New York. And people start approaching them with modeling contracts. And so she's like, mom, can we be models? And her mom is like, fuck no. And at first when I read this, I thought like, oh, good for her mom for protecting her. But then Claire was like, no, her mom just didn't want the Hilton name to be associated with something frivolous. She wanted it to be like debutante. And I was like, well, yeah, she's probably protecting herself. I do feel like this family cares first and foremost about the reputation and their name. This is something she wanted to do and she was failing in so many other aspects of the typical teen life that if they had let her succeed in this way in a monitored, watched way, it might have been her only hope. Yeah. So instead of modeling, they go to school. She and Nikki both interview at this one school, Sacred Heart. It's like a prestigious Catholic school. And she thinks it sucks. They literally sit down and they get interviewed together. Nikki is like, this is what I loved. And they go, Paris, what did you like best about the school? I tried to sound breezy. Nothing. 
Well, what did you like about your last school? Art, field hockey. Look, I don't want to go to the school, so I'm not trying to impress you. This place sucks. I'd rather kill myself. So she goes to the professional children's school, which who, which of our other memoirists went there at the same time? Oh, Melissa Joan Hart. Melissa Joan Hart went there, and I think she references Macaulay Culkin as well. So Macaulay Culkin, as Paris says, had an apartment right next door to the school, and that's just where they partied all the time. So she doesn't spend that much time at that school. She has a really hard time sitting still and going to class, which, once again, is her ADHD. And not the fact that she is partying as much as she can and staying up all night. I mean, she would stay out all night and then go home and go to sleep at like 5 a.m. and then wake up for school. Or she would just stay out, go to school, very Jennifer Grey. It was easy to lose track inside the brick walls and blacked out windows. When raves went late and late and so late that it was early again, I figured it was better not to go home at all. I crashed at a friend's house, slept all day, and then went back out the next night. And she would come home to her parents weeping, not knowing where she was. They would call the cops. They would report her missing. Like, they were always afraid and looking for her. They tried physically locking her into her room, and then she would whisper through the door and convince her little brother to go get the key and let her out. Her grandma came to town and slept on a cot in front of her door. They really didn't like her sneaking out, and she thought that the paparazzi were protecting her. She's like, no, the paparazzi are always taking pictures of me and no one would attack or kidnap me if there's pictures of it. (laughs) I felt like they could trust me to take care of myself and be cool with it. Obviously, that was totally selfish and idiotic. Why would any parent be okay with that? I certainly won't be okay with it as a mom. I mean, yeah, that's the thing is I don't think what happened to her was the solution. But her being like, all I wanted to do was stay out all night. I knew where I was going, so it's not that big of a deal. Like, that's stupid. For some crazy reason, mom and dad did not find the idea of paparazzi comforting. Obviously, first and foremost, they were concerned for my safety. In addition to a random stranger danger, they were legitimately scared that kidnappers might see this girl from a rich family and take me for ransom. But they were also worried about what people would say in their, if their underage daughter was seen hanging out in nightclubs and raving till dawn. Yeah, I think that's mostly it. Now that I'm in the driver's seat of a billion-dollar brand, I understand how distraught my parents were at the idea of my picture showing up on page six, the New York Post gossip section. When you're building a brand, embarrassment comes with a price tag. So she gets kicked out of the professional children's school because she never goes. That made her mom cry. It made me feel terrible. I kept promising to do better and I really wanted to, but I kept failing tests and ditching classes. So then she goes to Dwight in 10th grade and I said, Dwight, dumb white idiots getting high together. And she goes, I still see jokes about it online. Dumb white idiots getting high together. (laughs) And I was like, okay, so she knows. Weed wasn't my thing at all back then, so I felt like I didn't fit in at Dwight any more than I did at Sacred Heart. <laughs> she has a huge Sweet 16 party, DJ AM DJs. This is another thing about it. It's like when it's parents-sanctioned partying, they let her have these blowout parties. I do think for a teenager to be like, okay, I'm allowed to like rent out a club for my birthday party, but I can't just like hang out there when it's free and it's Tuesday. <laughs> the other thing is... So she says, my mom had never spent a night away from my dad. So whenever he traveled for work, which was often, she would go with him. And if the whole family could go, we would all go. But if I had school or anything, we stayed with nannies. And she's like, and I could always outsmart the nannies. And I'm like, first of all, Paris, you're not outsmarting the nannies. They're just not paid enough to like physically restrain a teenage daughter who isn't their daughter. But second of all, I do feel like they were willing to do anything that was not inconvenient to them at all. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They were like, oh, she's such a pain. We'll send her to her grandma. She's such a pain. We'll send her to like hell prison. But they were never like, oh, living in New York City is not good for her. Let's move to the suburbs. They, right. They didn't ever say, oh, let's move to Scarsdale. They never said, oh, let's roll back the travel. We need to be here for our daughter. We need to keep an eye on her. I'm sorry. If you moved to somewhere where she can't walk. Yeah. It's like, oh, you want to party so hard? You want to party so hard? You'll take the metro north? Photos of her start 
leaking to the press. Dad was silently irate. Mom cried daily. They raged that I was breaking their hearts, becoming a bad influence on my sibling, throwing my life away, acting like a spoiled, out-of-control brat. It was the same dialogue over and over. Them. What are people thinking right now? That we let our children run around all over town? What are we supposed to do? Move to the moon? Yes. Oh, my God. Leave me alone. I'm so sick of this conversation. I do think, like, the conversation was driven to what are people going to think. Yeah. And so instead of moving to the moon, instead of trying another thing, they enroll her in one of these troubled teen program schools. I'm making a real effort to understand what the situation was like for my parents because I will never understand what they chose to do about it. To save your baby, you do it too, mom says on the rare occasion she's willing to talk about it. She says it with absolute certainty, even now knowing how it all went so wrong. You would do the same. Not in a million fucking years, I think, but I don't say that out loud. I don't have it in me to argue with her because I can't bear the thought that anything will separate me from my family ever again. Instead, I put my arms around her neck and say the one thing I can say, I love you, mom. She's like, I don't know what night it is to this day because her and her family barely talk about it. She hasn't seen records. So she just knows in autumn 1997, she fell asleep and around 4.30 in the morning, the bedroom door crashed open and someone tore the covers off me. A thick hand grabbed my ankle and dragged me off the mattress. I was instantly awake, hyper awake, in a state of panic, shrieking, struggling. My mind went instantly to the obvious. I'm about to be raped. I'm about to be murdered. And she goes, here my memory shatters, a broken mirror in my hand. Two men, hands on me, coffee breath, body odor. One of them clamped a sweaty palm over my mouth. Shutting off the air, I needed to scream. The other held up a pair of handcuffs, said, do you want to do this the easy way or the hard way? I chose the hard way. So she's kicking and screaming. This is a nightmare. She's trying to wake herself up. She thinks she's getting kidnapped. She's screaming, mom, dad, help me. And then I see my mom and dad. Their bedroom door is cracked open just enough for them to peek out through the edge. Faces streaked with tears. They press against each other and watch as two strangers drag me out the door into the darkness. I guess I also can't believe that they like witnessed that type of physical violence and thought that that was necessary. So as we'll get in, like part of what happened here is these psychiatrists who were being paid off by this school would be like, this is the only way to do it. This is the best way to do it. But yeah, how could you watch your daughter be manhandled like that by two giant men and be like, and then from here on out, they're only going to lovingly care to her. This school industry has created this world where the only way to cure a troubled teen is two plus years of this intensive program. Basically, whenever you put them in until they're 18 or you run out of money. They say, like, your kids are going to try to manipulate you to get sent home. Like, they are going to say anything and everything because the reason you're sending them to us is because they're an out-of-control, manipulative teenager. They're going to try to manipulate you to get out of here. So don't believe what they say because they're just trying to get out. Okay. So she does a really good job, I will say, giving you context, citations, quotes, laws. She does the work. So let me give you the background on this school. Once upon a time in Palm Springs, a furniture salesman named Mel Wasserman was on his way to a local diner and saw some teenagers on a street corner protesting whatever people were protesting in 1964. According to legend, Mel invited them to his house for a spaghetti dinner and offered them a place to stay for the night. They could even stay longer, he said, but they had to live by his agreement, which included a strict code of appearances and behavior and participation in group therapy sessions. Wasserman was a disciple of Charles E. D. Dederick, a founder of Synanon, a violent cult that had been driven underground but never fully eradicated by the FBI. So essentially, he created this system of rehabilitating troubled teens using physical and verbal violence. Wasserman saw an opportunity to monetize all this and took it to the next level. He created the cult environment, now calling it an emotional growth boarding school. Wasserman named his school CEDU, short for Charles E. Dederick University. But because of the lawsuits and bad press surrounding the cult, promotional materials claimed it meant see yourself as you are, do something about it. It was so successful, Wasserman and his disciples, plus a few venture capitalists who saw potential, opened sister schools in states where oversight laws were lame and authorities were willing to look the other way. 
They gained accreditation and developed a lucrative partnership with private insurers and state agencies so that they could siphon money away from Medicaid and the foster system. In the 1990s, Maury Povich and Sally Jesse Raphael legitimized CEDU and made bank off of wild teen episodes featuring kids, mostly pretty girls, sent off to boot camp and boarding schools for tough love. Later, Dr. Phil got on board, including video of the violent transportation of a teenage boy who was dragged out of bed by dudes three times his size, the same way I was. And Dr. Phil was on board as recently as last year. I don't know if you guys remember Bad Baby, Catch Bahad, Me Outside. Bahad, Bahabi. Bahad, Bobby, Catch Me Outside, girl. She was sent by Dr. Phil and his team to one of these schools and last year came out to talk about it. Dr. Phil is currently being sued for his involvement with these schools, but it is still so prevalent. It's really scary and I'm really impressed and happy that she's found the strength to talk about this in so much detail because, I mean, it's only going to stop existing if powerful people sit here and break down for the exact details of the trauma they went through and it's really hard to break down your trauma like that. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, the state of Alaska spent more than $31 million in Medicaid funds to send 511 kids to facilities in Utah between 1999 and 2005, an average of $60,000 per child. And that's kids funded by taxpayers of just one state. Working class parents mortgaged their homes and took second jobs to send their kids to CEDU. All the parents came in with deep pockets, so CEDU aggressively courted them, especially celebrities. My parents were not alone. Michael Douglas, Clint Eastwood, Roseanne Barr, Barbara Walters, and Montel Williams, and Marie Osmond, the list goes on. Programs expanded to kids as young as eight years old, staffed with loyal graduates who are too damaged to make it out in the real world. Too long, don't read. The random spaghetti dinner at Mel Wasserman's ballooned into a $50 billion per year business we call the troubled teen industry. It should make you want to cry and throw this book across the room and yell, this is wrong, this has to change. I find it upsetting too, but I don't cry about it much anymore. The terrible truth is I've become numb after a while. When you endure horror... Day after day, month after month, it becomes normalized. I built a stone wall around my heart, walls that no one could break through or climb over for more than 20 years. The decision to send me away is a rough topic for my parents. They haven't shown me any records, so I don't know exactly the dates of when this all happened, but I have some theories. And I don't know exactly how they found CEDU or who convinced them that this was their only option. This wasn't about a kid ditching school and talking back, says mom. We did it to save your life. Dad says straight up, you needed to go there. You were out of control. End of conversation. To me, that feels like blame. You made us do it. But I love my parents, so I can't bear to take that coping mechanism away from them. We're all living with a brutal legacy of this the best way we know how, and they have expressed regret in their way. I'm sorry you had such a hard time. I'm sorry you had to go through that. For a long time, I just wanted to hear them say, I'm sorry we made a terrible mistake, but they're just not there yet. Maybe they never will be, and that's okay. To be fair, I've never said I'm sorry. I pushed you to the point of desperation, so here we go. So she gives her parents an apology and then says, moving on. And then she does the whole like memoir thing of someone else may remember it differently, but this is my perception of the experience as I experienced it. Please be patient with me. I'm sitting here with my eyes closed, my heart pounding, trying to remember a lot of shit I tried hard to forget. So she brings us back to that first transport when she is brought in a car to the airport and they threaten to handcuff her through the airport unless she behaves and she agrees to behave because at that point she's like a little bit known in New York City and she did not want to be seen being taken through the airport in handcuffs. And she had no idea what was coming. So she gets there and she drives up. And the first thing they do is make her strip. She like can't believe it because mm-hmm. there's men and women present. And then also other students present. There's just people. She's just in the middle of a lobby. And they're like, take off all your clothes. Take off your bra. Take off your underwear. And then they're like squat down and cough. And they digitally penetrate her doing a cavity search. And then she is brought to her room where her quote-unquote older sister, which is what her roommate calls herself, is like, hey, learn all the rules and be happier here because if you work the program, it works. And she like can't figure out why this girl is so demented and weird. And then, of course, she realizes that 
This girl's been brainwashed to all hell. The game of this school is you can't trust anybody and everybody will tell on you. So you're only out for yourself. And the way they set it up is like if one kid does something wrong, everybody gets punished. So there is no loyalty at this school. So she's there. She's miserable. She's not allowed to have her own clothes. She's not even allowed to have shoes yet because shoes is something you have to earn. And she's like, hey, you have to clean this room. And if it's not absolutely spotless, they rip up the whole room and make you do it again. She's given a list of rules. No swearing, no singing, no humming, throat clearing, dancing, skipping, spinning, touching, hugging, kissing, holding hands, crossing your legs, shuffling your feet, whistling, breathing too loud, smacking your lips while eating, talking about music, sports, television shows, movies, news, events, your parents, siblings, friends, your clothes, your room, your school, anything about home. No mention of Marilyn Manson. You can't talk about candy, pizza, hot dogs, cheeseburgers. I mean, no eye rolling, no sighing, no snoring, no slouching, no shrugging, no fidgeting. The one that gets me is no looking out a window without permission, no opening a door without permission, no going to the bathroom without permission, no asking for permission to go to the bathroom, open a door, or look out a win- for a window, no asking for food or water. So essentially, this is just a list of things where if they catch you in any moment looking in any direction, they can choose to punish you. Like there's not a single thing here where they can't be like, well, I just saw you roll your eyes or I just heard you breathe loud. Like, And it's like if you don't eat the food they give you, they will force feed it to you. If you do anything, they're allowed to scream and belittle and honestly uh, physically beat you. Her roommate is like... She calls her roommate Blanda. Paris is like, don't bother. I'm not saying it. She goes, don't say that. You'll get us both in trouble. If you try to run, they'll bring you back and then you'll be sorry. If you don't work the program and stay in agreement, you'll end up going to Ascent or even Provo. Trust me, you do not want to get sent to Provo. We just want to help you, Paris. We just want you to know yourself and nurture the child within you, your little you. You'll be amazed how fast two years fly by. And at this point, Paris had no idea she was up for two years. And she was like, I can't, I can't live here. I have to get out of here. So then her first night, she experiences what they call rap. So rap is a, I guess, almost daily event where they gather and essentially take turns just berating someone until they break. So they zero in on one person. They'll scream at them, all of the things. And they they have this other thing. I forgot what it's called. It's like a sin sheet, your dirt, your dirt sheet or something. Yeah. Where like during assignments and classes, you have to write down every bad thing you've ever done. So they have this whole rap sheet of the horrible things you've done. And then you get to write down bad things you've seen other people do. Like if you see a girl look at a boy or if you see somebody look out a window, you get to write it down and rat them out. So at rap, they will zero in on one person at a time and focus on some of the things they believe that person has done wrong or just if they don't have any actual dirt on someone from their dirt sheet, they'll just zero in on like what they think they know about that person and just start screaming it and screaming it and screaming it until you admit it, basically. So she gives the example. They're all sitting in a circle and somebody just starts. A roaring tide of verbal sewage came at me. Like when you see a film of a flooding river, dark water full of debris. It was worse than sticks and stones. This was like bricks and broken glass. It was relentless and it lasted a long time. And there's loud music playing too. Like yeah. John Denver soft rock music. Who do you think you are? You got kicked out of every school in the world, you stupid spoiled bitch. Fuck you, you stupid lazy bitch. You think you're all that. Your family hates you. You talk a sick fucking influence on your siblings. They don't give a crap about you. You're a stupid, spoiled, fucking lazy, stupid bimbo. Just admit it. Admit what a stupid, spoiled liar slacking until you end up going to Provo and I hope they beat the shit out of you. On and on like that until I bent over with my arms over my head trying to protect myself from the storm of words and spit and cruelty. I couldn't breathe. Waves of nausea rolled through my stomach. My pulse hammered in my head. I felt like my soul was being sucked to the top of my skull. I heard someone screaming and realized it was me. That's the objective of rap, to force someone past the last jagged inch of what they think they can stand. You'd like to think you'll sit there and be tough or yell back or walk out or whatever, but there were beefy Imperial Marine throwbacks standing guard all around to make sure nobody went anywhere. That's it, Paris. Run your anger. If you don't participate, then the, they'll turn to the you. The teacher next. will look and be like, why aren't you participating? And they'll all turn on you. And if you say something wrong, like, so it's just they go around and it lasts for hours, just 
three or four times a week, hours and hours and hours of this. And the only way to make it end was to confess. You had to spill some dark secrets, share your terrible thoughts, or divulge some creepy thing about yourself. People confessed to doing and thinking horrible things, raping a cousin, killing a dog, wanting to stab parents and strangle girlfriends, which was utterly terrifying to me because I thought these confessions were all real. I was like, who are these people? It didn't even cross my mind that some kids were just making shit up, saying whatever they had to to make the abuse stop. This was the message drilled into us during those endless sessions. Whoever you were counting on, family, friends, anyone who ever said they cared about you, forget about them. They lied. They left you just when you needed them most. Anyone who says they love you, they don't. You are not worthy of love. And if you love yourself, you're fucking delusional. So then at the end of every rap session, they do something called smush, which is, as Paris says, more deranged than rap. And that is where they like do a cuddle puddle. Yeah, they get in front of a fire on this big horseshoe couch and everybody has to like sit on each other's laps and play with each other's hair. You'll get used to it, Blanda whispered. No, I promised myself I won't. And she didn't. And I do want to say how much I admire her for that. I would have broken minute eight. We were talking about how quickly being transported there. I mean, in a second. I don't know. They would, as soon as they said, take your shirt off, I'd be like, literally whatever you say. I am gruel. <laughs> I Let work me here die. Now. You are my leader. <laughs> Let me scrub the toilet with my hands. <laughs> I don't think that's too far from what they were doing. Oh. They would have been like, at the very least. When you've burnt your very last piece of toast or you don't realize your hot sauce is on its very last drip at the most inopportune time, try grocery delivery from DoorDash. You'll get everything you want delivered when you need it right to your door. You've trusted DoorDash to deliver your restaurant favorites, and now you can get grocery deliveries too. With thousands of grocery stores to choose from, you can find the best in your neighborhood and boost your local economy with every single order. You can get exactly what you ordered or they'll make it right. Sit back and enjoy quality groceries just like you picked them out yourself. With easy substitutions right in the app and best-in-class customer service, DoorDash delivers groceries exactly how you want it. I am a very specific person when it comes to my groceries. I think I get it from my dad. And by that, I mean, I know I get it from my dad because he has, in fact, tried to return ketchup. But being able to pick and choose my groceries with DoorDash, it is so convenient. They do such a good job and it helps when I get extra busy, but I'm trying to do some more home cooking. Get 50% off your first DoorDash order up to a $20 value when you use the code WORM at checkout. Limited time offer terms apply. That's 50% off up to $20, no minimum subtotal, zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter the code WORM. Don't forget, that's the code WORM for 50% off your first order with DoorDash. My parents had been counseled by the psychiatrist who made weekly visits to the school that I would try to lie and manipulate them into letting me come home. He told them the only way to literally save my life was to be strong and refuse to listen to my begging and pleading. So every two weeks, she gets a 50-minute phone call that's monitored by her roommate and a teacher. And if she starts to say anything bad, they just hang up the phone and say, if you say anything like that again, like you will lose phone privileges until you earn them back. And also she calls and she's like, I wasn't going to say anything, but then it just bursts out of me. Mom, please, you have to get me out of here. This place is fucked up. You don't even know. Paris, honey, I know it's hard. You just have to hang in there and work the program. Work the program. It was scary to hear CEDU speak come out of my mother's mouth. I'd been operating on the assumption that my parents had no idea what was happening here. Now I didn't know what to think. So she's like, I'm, I have to get out of here. And she, and it's tough stuff because they have them doing manual labor like 18 hours a day. They feed them probably 1,200 calories, not enough water. You're not allowed to ask for extra water. So she's exhausted, beaten down emotionally, physically, she in every way. She can't sleep because just emotionally, as soon as the lights go out, she just can't get there. During school hours, they're not doing school. They're making their dirt lists and disclosures and writing their lists of cop-outs. 
She at one point does this thing called profit, which is where you have to lie on the ground and they put a towel in between your teeth and the trainer has you, the kid bite down and try to keep their head on the floor while the trainer yanked the towel and fighting to lift them up. And yes, this is as violent as it sounds. There are stories about people losing teeth and a girl whose jaw was so messed up they needed surgery. So they're just having her do every day different hells and she comes up with a plan. So one night they have this all night outdoor ceremony situation and she sees this as her opportunity. The place is surrounded by forest and everyone says, don't go into the forest. The kids they've killed are there. And she's since learned like there are kids they've killed. Yeah. That could have very well been in the forest. But to her at the time, she was like, kids they've killed in the forest. That's some overnight camp stupid shit. So she says that she has to go to the bathroom one night. She breaks out through the window in the bathroom, which is super small, but she's very tall. And at this point, like a hundred pounds because she's already very naturally skinny and then they've been starving her to death. And she knows that the whole school is gathered for this event on the other side of the building. So she's able to break out through the window and sprint down, climb a fence. We know she's great at hopping fences. Yeah. She said she had been looking around to see smoke. So she had a general idea of where the closest town was. And she just runs to town, finds a bar, finds a payphone and calls Kyle Richards, her aunt, who was only 20 years old at the point. And living in L.A. And right now she's about 80 miles from L.A. because she knows they landed at LAX and drove for like an hour and a half. So she is hiding in this bar. She like crawls up to the attic of this bar and is like watching everyone downstairs. And people from the school and police keep coming by and being like, have you seen a little blonde girl? And they're like, no, we haven't. And so she's like, I just have to hide here until Kyle comes to get me. And then the bar closes. And she's like, fuck, what if she's outside and she doesn't see me? So she quietly runs with it back to the payphone and calls Kyle and is like, hey, Kyle, like, have you come yet? And Kyle's like, no. And as she's talking to Kyle to figure out where Kyle is, some grabs her by the back of the throat. So Kyle had called her mom and told her where she was supposed to meet Paris. And I mean, she says, you know, Kyle was in her 20s at the time. I don't know what I would have done if I had gotten a call like that. Of course, she called my mom. But I am like... Kyle, you stupid bitch. Like, at least get the girl McDonald's and then take her back. Like, you have – if somebody is that desperate to meet up with you, I feel like you meet with her. She says, I didn't even see the back of the hand coming at me. Next thing I knew, I was down on the ground. An enforcer hauled me up, and they just went crazy on me, hitting and choking me, streaking at me, telling everybody to look what happens. And everybody looked. Their eyes were as big as soccer balls. A lot of them were crying. No doubt this was an intense thing to witness. And I suppose that was the whole point. That's why they didn't need barbed wire or steel bars or iron doors. There was something a lot stronger keeping people inside. So this is when they start, like, beating the shit out of her. She goes through the fact, like, just some horrible facts about this place, which is that their number one psychiatrist who came every week to drug them and assess them lived with this guy who was named James Lee Crummel, a convicted child molester and serial killer. It turns out that this psychiatrist had housed no fewer than at least three child molesters, convicted child molesters, who would he would bring with him to the school. There's also been numerous deaths at this school. And this is where she just stops and takes a break and she says, I can't go on right now. And it is effective in reading this book the way that she just breaks off in her explanation of these horrific events to reminisce on the better times in her life. She says, fuck that place. What the fucking fuck? Why do these monsters get to be a part of my story? I fucking hate this. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to think about it. I can't think about it. I have to think about fucking think platform boots and she goes into some of her favorite memories and her dogs and her favorite shoes and just a really fun memory of the iconic photo of her Lindsay Lohan and of Britney Spears in the front scene of that car she's like this is my happy place is like thinking about these moments that became iconic yeah and then she talks about how it happened it's honestly not that interesting a story her and Britney were leaving a party Lindsay was also leaving not with them at the same time the paparazzi kept saying why are you guys fighting and to prove they weren't fighting her publicist at the time. Elliot Mintz like shoved Lindsay into the car so that the three of them looked like friends. People took the photo. 
Now she's like millions of dollars has been made off that photo and not a dollar has gone to us. Yep. She takes this time to say, In the years after my Sea-Doo experience, the roar of the rap was never far away. I tried hard to drown it out, but I couldn't party hard enough, drive fast enough, crank my music loud enough, or vacuum up enough love to make it go away. Sometimes I fell back on that Slayer be slain mentality, and I'm not proud of that. I was fucked up, okay? And I drank a lot, like a lot. The rap was about destroying people for who they are. People went to the most obvious target in the ugliest possible language. The N-word, the C-word, the F-word. I look back on some of those things and in the years after I left Provo in the throes of PTSD and I'm mortified, horrified, I'm grossed out because that means those creepy people got inside my head and I never really left them behind. Okay. I mean, people wanted to know, was she going to acknowledge her past racism and homophobic language? I don't know that this is the greatest apology I've I ever seen. I do don't think, think it's an apology. It's not an apology. And even later, she actually goes on to say, I'm not going to say sorry for the things I've done in the past that were mistakes. Like I've changed and I've grown and I extend people grace who are mean to me. So I hope they give me the same grace. That's not an apology. I do think she's brilliantly like couches this in like horrific trauma in order to get out of it. I, first of all, I think making an excuse like that is, I mean, obviously it's a pretty bulletproof thing to be like, oh, how dare you say you were traumatized? She was traumatized. Yeah. But to say my trauma is the reason that I said these things, I don't think is fair. And I just don't think it's true. And I have to say later she commends Sarah Silverman, who did some really mean jokes about her at the VMAs. Like years later, Nikki and Paris talked about it on Paris's podcast. And Sarah Silverman came out the next day and said, you're right. Like at the time, this is how we talked. I partook in it. I feel bad about it. I'm trying to move with the times. Like I can't take back what I did, but I actively choose to try to be different now. And I'm sorry that I hurt you. And I think that is a good apology that Paris recognizes, but does not extend herself. Yeah. I just find it not sincere for her to be like, it was all the trauma. I don't. What about Nikki? Was Nikki not doing these things either? Right. So we were talking about this and... Overall, the fact that she is speaking out about these horrific things happening to children that are still happening, using her platform to talk about these things is hugely important and I don't think should be shut down because she is not perfect, but like a real apology would be smart and nice. Like a real apology would be the right thing to do, but to say like, oh, Paris has said bad things, so this book shouldn't exist. Like this book is going to help a lot of people. I agree. I mean, I think it's a cop out. Oh, yeah. I think it's a huge cop out on Paris. I mean, it's literally not even an apology. I think, And especially like thinking about it more, the way that she does want apologies from the people who hurt her. The least she could do is a sincere apology. It's funny because she like accused her parents. She goes, they operate if they don't acknowledge that they hurt you, then they don't have to say sorry. And she sort of does that too. Even in her first preface, she has this line about, and I have ADHD, so people have been hurt by what I've done sometimes. And I'm like, no, Paris, say, I can be hurtful to people and I'm sorry. Not people have been hurt by me. It's a difference. And like people have hurt you. You've hurt people. No one on this planet can say they haven't been on both sides of that coin. Yeah. (laughs) And you just have to own it. Anyway, so after she tried to escape and she was back at school, things just went from bad to worse. I mean, they just targeted her more than ever. I sat through a few raps with a frozen Stepford smile. I was dying a million times inside, but I wouldn't let myself fight back. I had to conserve my energy. I planned to run again. She is getting transported to the worst school. So basically what they do is like the place she was at first was the nice one. And if you fuck up there, they'll send you to stricter and stricter hell holes. So she gets sent to the next strict hell hole, which is called Ascent, which is up by San Francisco. So they're taking her to the airport. And it's like this meathead couple. 
And she's like, I have to get out of here. So when they're in the airport, she's like, can I go to the bathroom? And they're like, sure. She's handcuffed, by the way. So she says she has to go to the bathroom because she needs them to uncuff her. They refuse to do it. She's trying to sweet talk them. They will not do it. She gets in there and she's obviously not allowed to lock the door, but the lady's standing right in front of it, which is actually great for Paris. So Paris kangaroo kicks the door, knocks the lady into the sink and sprints. She runs as fast as she fucking can through the airport. The husband's chasing her. The wife is chasing her. It doesn't matter. She dives into a cab and she goes, take me to the Hilton. The Hilton lets her in and she's like, quick, I need to use the phone. People are after me. I have an abusive boyfriend out there. I need help. And they're like, totally. So they give her the phone and she runs and she calls her mom. And she goes, it's cute how I keep forgetting that my mom is way smarter than me. And this makes me sad. This isn't a smart thing. Your mom didn't outsmart you. You trusted her to get you out of an abusive situation and she was not on your side. She did not believe you. It was not a smart thing. So it turns out after the first time she ran, they wiretapped their own phones, her mom and her dad, so that should she ever escape again and call them, within 30 seconds they can pinpoint where she is and find her. So she's on the phone with her mom and her mom is like, hold on, we're getting you help. We're going to get somebody like your dad's calling somebody right now. We're going to make sure you're taken care of. And of course, immediately a cop shows up and holds her until the meathead couple can come back and re-collect her. When we arrived at the sun, a burly woman in combat fatigue strip searched and groped me in full view of the staff and gawking students. Only sanitation was a pair of porta potties. Instead of showers, you got a bucket of cold water with a cup and a bar of soap. Kids were required to strip naked and wash while staff watched. Another camp was being built nearby, so we spent our days hiking to that location, hauling logs, digging holes. Every night, you washed your socks, and if they didn't dry, you had to go without. Sometimes kids passed out, and we had to carry them back to the camp. Sometimes we never saw that person again, but one girl came back. After a brief trip to the hospital and told me I was handcuffed the whole time, no one would speak to me in the ER. Breakfast was grainy cereal with milk that was obviously bad. I tried to drain out the sour milk, but the team leader said, eat it or I'll shove it down your throat. One girl comes up to her and is like, we should try to escape together. And she's like, you know what? Sure, I'm going to try to escape. So maybe we can do it together. And then that girl rats her out to the person. And the person spends all night berating Paris being like, I heard you're trying to escape. I heard you're trying to escape. And she's trying to protect her tentmate. But she finds out in the morning her tentmate was the one who ratted her out in the first place. I can't even try to be funny about this or pretend I was a tough cookie. That chick scared the living shit out of me. I cried and begged her to stop. And every day after that, I did whatever she told me to do. I worked my ass off, ate whatever crap they put in front of me, and never said another word about running away. I played a familiar character, the stupid rich girl. The blonde bimbo they expected me to be. Burley wasn't lying. She really could have buried me there. And no one in any official capacity would have known or cared. The report goes on to cite one agonized example after another. I mean, so many kids have died in these camps. I don't want to like go through and read all of them, but one of them is November 2004, a male 15 years old forced to wear 20 pound sandbag around his neck as punishment for being too weak, collapsed and died. Autopsy revealed bruises over entire body. Another kid died of stroke exertion while hiking. A staff member hid behind a tree to observe if he was faking it. Checked for pulse after child lay motionless for more than 10 minutes. How are these schools existing? Like, she's right. She effectively wrote a book that makes me want to throw it across the room and scream. So she finally was like, I have to get out of here. They had this one last thing called a trek and it involved hiking over some mountains. They had 80 pound bags and they were just going to be out there for weeks and weeks in the wild with nothing but their bags. And she was like, this is my way to escape. This other girl, Tess, was like, you have to take me with you. And so they're like, fine. So that one day in the middle of the night, they run down. At the bottom of the hill, they find this woman in a trailer. And they're like, we need help. 
we're out with men and they tried to assault us. And so the woman just takes them in, lets them take a shower, gives them food and lets them sleep and borrow clothes. She's like, I knew that this woman could tell that the story we were telling wasn't true, but she still helped us. She gave us clothes. She drove us to the train station and we were going to take the train down to Los Angeles. Looking back, I see this woman acting on a pure instinct. No hesitation, just plain human kindness. Words can express how much it meant to me. When I lose faith in people, when love feels impossible and it seems like anyone who isn't paid is going to abandon me, I think about that lady and know there's goodness in the world. So they're waiting for their train, but it wasn't a busy train station and they're hiding and trying to stay as low-key as possible, but the ticket agent keeps glancing at them, probably because there was some sort of report out with their descriptions. Finally, our train came and we hurried out to get on, but two Krukra ascent goons blocked us on the platform. The creepy way he was smiling, I thought he was going to rape me right in front of everyone. Thank God he just beat the shit out of us. I don't know what happened to Tess, but for the next several weeks, I pretended I was super, super sorry for running. So she tries to get out on Trek again. And she's told that at the end of Trek, your parents are there and you get to go home. So she's like, fuck it. Okay, I can make it through this. I've come this far. I'm just going to hike. They hike for three more weeks. And at the end, they do this like crazy sweat lodge vision quest thing that she says they like stole from Native Americans. We weren't allowed to sleep for 72 hours. There was a sweat lodge that they made themselves. If a kid passed out, we dragged them out into the snow to be revived and then trudged back in. They were just stuck there, not allowed to sleep, not allowed to eat, not allowed to drink until they like had essentially nervous breakdowns. And then finally, she gets to the end and Burley says, you did it. You graduated. And she said, I'm going home. Where are my parents? Burley goes, they'll meet you in Reading and drive you to Cascade. You got another year to work the program. And this, I mean, like knocked the life out of her. And so she sees her parents and she's like, please don't make me go. Please don't make me go. And they literally say, let's not spend our time arguing. This is hard for all of us. We have to be strong. We have one year left before you turn 18. This is our last chance to save you. We have to see it through. She'd been primed for this conversation. If parents raised any doubts or fears, the counselors leaned into the CEDU script. Don't believe anything your child says. She'll make up stories and say she's being abused. She'll say anything to go back to her old life, a life that will leave her dead or in prison. Tough love is the only way. You must be strong enough to save your child. So she is able to convince her parents that her hair looks like shit and she deserves to go to the salon before they take her to the new shitty prison school. So they take her to a salon. At the salon, she kicks her way out the window, runs to the train station. Gets on the bus heading to Los Angeles. She makes it two stops before a police gets on the bus and they send her right fucking back. So she gets sent back to Cascade School. And this time she actually had some money she had stolen. I squatted and coughed and endured the cavity search without whimpering. I put on the pinks and followed my new big sister to our room. She turned out the light and I waited until it sounded like she was sleeping. Only then did I finally allow myself to touch the slim roll of cash tucked under the bun on top of my head. The money was rolled tight. See, I had learned that these strip searches were about invasion, not investigation. It was a demonstration of their power over every part of your body. So they focus on private parts, the parts you instinctively try to protect. Some of them obviously enjoyed it. They didn't even bother pretending. The cavity searches, like any sexual assault, was about them, not the person they were doing it to. Once I understood that, it was easy to fool them. So she keeps this money and she's like, I'm going to run away. And she just starts plotting. She also uses this time to start escaping into her own little dream world. The money made her feel so safe. She says, I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to make a fuck ton of money and then no one will be able to hurt me ever again. She also starts learning her own little coping mechanisms of lying to people because she says it's a lot less painful when people are screaming you and berating you for something that isn't true. So she decides she's going to run away and this little girl named Mouse that she calls her Mouse comes up and says you're going to run aren't you? Take me with you. If I stay here I'll die. She kept getting ripped apart in raps for tempting her uncle and making him do bad things. She hadn't figured it out yet. She had to give them something to distract them like say oh I hate myself because I'm my family is vegetarian and I used to sneak out to Burger King. Who cares if people tear you up for something that isn't true? So they decide to run 
And this is like a camping camp. So they're outside most of the time. And Paris has kind of learned which nights are good running nights because the moon is brighter on certain nights than other nights. And she kind of gauges the direction of the town again. And so one night she grabs Mouse out of her sleep and is like, this is it. They sprint. They find a 7-Eleven. She has her little bit of cash. So they like buy mascara and disguises and draw mustaches on. And the fact that Paris is able to outside of it be like, this was kind of silly. She goes, we slicked our hair back under baseball caps and hoodies from the clearance bin and got on a Greyhound bus attempting to walk like beat boys. Honestly, thinking about that cracks me up now. That is funny. So they get on a bus and they get to Los Angeles and she finds a friend that she can crash with and they stay at his house for a few days, just watching TV, eating at the diner, having fun, being so fucking happy. And then he's like, but you can't stay here forever. So she finds a friend in Connecticut. He's like, I will pay for you to fly out here and live with me and my mom in our big house in Connecticut, but I I can't fly out a 14-year-old girl that's literally kidnapping. So she takes her to Denny's one day, says she's going to the bathroom and leaves out the employee exit. It's clawing at me now all these years later. Over the decades, I've tried not to think about that skinny little girl in a huge, unforgiving city. When I think about the most likely fate of a kid like her, it makes me want to throw up. I was trying to save her and I ended up throwing her to the wolves. I pray that she found someone who was better able to help her than I was. I hope she grew up okay and that she was able to forgive me. Mouse, if you're out there, I want you to know that I'm sorry I abandoned you. I was desperate and didn't know what else to do. I feel like this is so hard because that is something that would be so hard to forgive yourself for, but what's the other option? So she goes out and spends a few weeks in Connecticut and it's amazing. They're watching TV. They're hanging out. They're eating. And one day he's like, let's go into the city and have lunch. And she's like, all right, sounds good to me. They go eat on the Upper East Side. She looks up and who comes right in but her dad. With officers who are there to take her back to school. Another lesson learned. No matter what happened from here, I'd be better off alone always. And then she gets into this thing about her dad and (laughs) she ties in some movie she did called Repo, the genetic opera. And she's like, I really got that movie because, you know, sometimes a great dad makes a bad choice that ruins his daughter's life because he thinks he's protecting her. And then sometimes a bad man will make a good choice to save his daughter. And she's like, it's just hard. It's hard to have a relationship. I mean, your dad made a really bad fucking choice like eight times in a row. I really cannot wrap my head around how many times she escaped and how many times her family sent her back. I don't doubt my dad's love for me. I hope he knows how much I love him, how grateful I am for the advice and guidance he's given me, and how much I respect the role he's played in our family's genetic opera. I guess she's always coming back and begging and begging me, like, please, I'll do anything. Let me stay. Like, I'll be good. They could have given her a week. They could have been like, maybe a couple of weeks of this was enough. And I guess seeing her, how did they think that what they were doing was right? I mean, she must have been starving down to nothing. She's showering by having buckets dumped on her. If she's working in the woods, if she is... I don't know. I guess I just don't know how you could see her that way. Like, even if what she was saying wasn't effective, what did her face look like? Like, what did you see in her face when she would break out and come to you and cry and beg? So after this, she gets sent to the worst of them all, Provo Canyon School. Her parents claimed that they had actually gone and toured it and it looked beautiful. And she's like, I guess the tour didn't include the area where the kids screamed in straight jackets, slept on the floor and were locked in solitary confinement. And she's like, they had classrooms that nobody ever used once. I mean, it was just hell. I mean, they had just loaded syringes of tranquilizer, which I think they called butt juice, booty juice, that they would just threaten to use on you at any time. Like any time you acted out of line, they'd be like, all right, well, we're going to shoot you up. And they would pull your pants down in front of everyone, just stab you, and then you would pass out. So the crazy thing is, thinking they were literally fighting for their child's life, parents signed over custodial rights and medical powers of attorney and agreed not to report suspected child abuse. Traumatized graduates were threatened and shamed into silence. The few who were strong enough to speak out had no way to connect or tell their stories until decades later. So she's talking about how this is like 1997, so Reddit didn't exist. There was no online forums for people. 
Yeah. So at this school, they had a different system. They had a point system and you started out hundreds of points in the hole and you could earn one to two points for good behavior and you would get docked dozens of points for any ounce of bad behavior. So like slouching, shuffling your feet, rolling your eyes, not speaking in the exact way they wanted to speak, looking at like all of those rules. And then because she had just tried to run away, she started out thousands of points in the hole And there's just no way to build that back up. So she had almost no privileges at the school because you had to have a certain amount of points to have a certain amount of privileges. And because she started so far down and it was so hard to earn your way anywhere, she had nothing. Provo intake was a step beyond what I'd experienced at CEDU, Ascent, and Cascade. There was a full pelvic exam. When I tried to resist, Pigface said, open your legs for the nurse so we'll get someone to restrain you. They also gave her faded sweatpants with the number 127. From that moment on, no staff member called me by my name. I was 127, a numbered unit on assembly line. She was not allowed outside for the full 11 months she was there. They kept her inside the entire time. Rebellious types slept on mattresses in the hall with the lights and doors open. Staff came along once in a while to poke us to make sure we were breathing, so I never really slept. Most people who worked there seemed to get off on degrading children and seeing them naked. They seemed to get a creepy pleasure from hitting, shoving, terrifying, and humiliating us. And she says a lot of them were Mormons and had gone to Brigham Young University. And so they were like, well, we're godly and you're not. So she's given a medication every day and she doesn't like how it makes her feel. She doesn't know what it is. So she starts figuring out a way to not take it, to hide it in her lip. And then they find out that she's not taking it. So this is the first time she gets sent to OBS, which is a pit of solitary confinement. She says it's about the size of a bathroom stall. It doesn't sound big enough to even lay down in necessarily. And they put you in there fully naked and they keep it at like 58 degrees so that you're freezing. And she says you're in there and they have like rows of them. So you'll hear other kids screaming. There's one tiny little window at the top, but you're basically just in full pitch darkness, freezing cold, naked for hours on end. This is where she truly discovers her inner world. She paints this picture. She goes into the details. She starts imagining exactly what her life is going to be and exactly who she wants to become. The minutia took me in. The details comforted me. The architecture of love, music, roses, all good things was as real to me as the Waldorf Astoria was to my great-grandfather. I didn't lose a grip on reality. I found it. She does also say this thing that I have to unfortunately LOL at. Shutting any kid into a cell like this is child abuse. For a kid with ADHD, it's straight up torture. And I'm positive most of the kids in these places were there because of ADHD behavioral issues. Let's just across the board say shoving a kid in a hole is torture. Not just like, and I was a little bit more bored than most people. (laughs) Uh, And then she somehow segues into her NFT life, which I like can't even... She loves to reference how these moments inspired NFTs that she's sold. And I'm just like, all right, man. Once you turn 18, they can't keep you there anymore because you're a legal adult. So she was like, I just have to make it to February 17th, 1999. Her parents come for Christmas. I can't believe they let parents into this school. I can't believe that the parents walked around and saw the looks on these broken children's faces and were like, it's working. And so they came at Christmas and she says, dad, please get me out of here. You don't know. And he goes, star, you need to finish what you started. I leaned in so close so that pig face couldn't hear me. Get me out. You don't believe me when I tell you this place is fucked up. Believe me when I say that I will leave her five seconds after I turn 18. Go to the Wall Street Journal and tell them everything. Everything. And I'm not fucking kidding. So they come back a month later and they get her out. It killed us to leave you there, but we kept saying to each other, we just have a few months before she turns 18. After that, there's nothing we can do to save her. Mom says they heard the rumors about stuff that went on at other emotional growth boarding schools. They assume that sort of horror show was only at the low rent places. That only happens to poor people. (laughs) They were paying top dollar, so it must have been fun. My life after Provo would be everything. Instead of wearing numbered sweats, I'd create a designer wardrobe and never wear the same outfit twice. Instead of bloodshot eyes and a bruised face, I'd have fake lashes, a seamless spray tan, and a touch of glitter on my cheekbones. Instead of shame, I could wrap myself in audacity, and I would make so much money and be so successful, no one could ever control me again. Fuck trust. Fuck entitlement. Fuck inheritance. Again, 
as it's getting closer and closer to release time, as she's been there for a year and a half, a year and three quarters, like what do her parents think the last two weeks is going to do? She's so miserable and so sad and so hurt. Why do they think, oh, well, there's only six weeks till she turns 18 and those six weeks are going to make all the difference. Like in those six weeks, she could just die. She talks about her relationship with her parents now and she says that her parents are like not really listening so much. Like they don't talk about it. They've taken a lot of flack for their decision to send me there. Industry gossip. Some of it has been brutal. There were times when mom felt so overwhelmed by it. And this is the flack she got, not what actually happened to Paris. She couldn't get out of bed. So it's important for me to acknowledge here that my parents also deserve some credit for my survival. No, they don't. Rick and Kathy Hilton didn't raise a fragile Fabergé egg rich girl. They raised a badass kid who kept fighting, climbing, running. We've actually laughed about it a little. You were like Houdini, mom says. Anywhere we put you, they'd call and say she's gone and off we'd go again. My stubborn streak, my staying power, compulsive work ethic and creative vision, all that was in my bone marrow. I inherited determination and a love of life from my mom and dad. They gifted me with a spine and the idea that I was entitled to good things. I refused to accept that I was a worthless piece of garbage, even when a grown man twice my size wrapped his hands around my neck and squeezed out from my windpipe, screaming in my face, you are a worthless piece of garbage. I knew it wasn't true. I knew I was a Hilton. That is a very generous way to look at it. I mean, obviously her top choice would be her parents to admit that she was wrong. But like if it comes at the expense of severing their relationship further, she can't ask for it. The thing she wants most is her family, even though I hate her family. (laughs) So she finally gets to go home. It's 1999. Baby, one more time is on the radio and it is an anthem. She goes, mostly I was starving for love. They programmed us to believe that if you talk shit about the school, the school would talk worse shit about you to your family, to your potential employers, and in my case, to the tabloids. It was a powerful muzzle. So she never talks about it with her family, with anyone. Her family had told everybody she had been at boarding school at London. She just let it slide. She didn't care. Nikki had no idea what was going on. Nobody except for her and her parents knew where she actually was. Like It was a secret until this documentary, I believe. You have a sibling. I have a sibling, yeah. If your sibling was under the impression you spent a year and a half at boarding school in London, don't you think they'd very quickly find out that wasn't true if it wasn't true? Like, it would come up. For them to live in that lie, everybody involved has to agree we're pretending this is true. We won't ask a single question. Yeah. She even says, I took my cues from mom and dad and stuck to their story. I was happy to cast her and dad as a vigilant, fully present parents. That's who they wanted to be. That's who they are. The parents who go to the ends of the earth for their child. Only in my case, they went to the wrong end. From the night I climbed out the window to kiss the pedophile, I'd felt cut off from my family. That was the most brutal part of everything I'd been through. It wasn't the physical miles that separated us. It was layer upon layer of shame, lies, and denial. I mean, that's the thing is, how do you have a conversation when there are that many lies? Like, you can't talk to someone if they say like, oh, what have you been up to? And you can't be like, oh, I was in prison school. So Nikki and her are very close in age, but Baron is 10 years younger than her and Conrad is 15 years younger than her. So she's like, as far as their memories go, I was never there. I was in Palm Springs when I was 14. I came back for one year. I was gone for two years. And she's like, they didn't know me. I didn't fit in with the family. And as soon as I came back, there was all this tension. It was hard to be like the source of struggle in my whole family that existed when I did just want to like love them and be with them. So they sent her to another boarding school in Connecticut. She gets kicked out of that one too because she keeps sneaking out. And at this point, she's 18, but she's in 10th grade because obviously they didn't do actual school at Provo. So none of the credits transfer. And her parents were like, wait, what? And I will say Paris. I cannot imagine getting out of that torture chamber and just being like, we're still breaking out of schools. I'm like, just finish. I guess I see it both ways. At that point, you're like, I've been through hell. I might as well have fun. But also I'm like, wow, they really didn't break you. They would have broken me. I would have lied face down on the ground till I died. (laughs) 
Also, though, in terms of just finish, like, it's one thing because she got out in winter of 1999. So it's one thing to be like, okay, school ends in May. You just have to finish. But she didn't just have to get till May. She had another, like, two and a half years of school to get through in order to, like, graduate. So she doesn't even end up getting her GED. She just starts partying and modeling and having fun. Because she's 18 now. And so all of the things her mom used to say, like, wait till you're 18. And also she knew she couldn't get sent back to those schools because they couldn't take you over the age of 18. She just was like, okay, I'm just going to live my life the exact way that I want to. And eventually she has to move out of her mom's house. So she moves to LA in 1999. She just like wants to have fun and catch up. She feels so disconnected from everybody. On top of that, she's living with this huge lie. So she just like kind of throws herself into having fun and partying. Listen, she does a really good job of making you be like, what else could you want to do besides partying? The way she like romances and paints the picture of the 1999 Los Angeles party scene. I'm just like, yeah, who would want to be anywhere else? And she's like, I had to stay out because I couldn't be alone. I was afraid of sleeping by myself. I was afraid of the dark. She's like, I couldn't sleep with lights on, but I would not turn off the lights to be alone. So she's like, I just want to stay up till 7 a.m. I was just scared of being asleep. And then she goes into the fact that at this school, one of the things they did at Provo that was worse than the other places is they called it a medical exam. And because I wasn't ready to call it digital rape, I called it a medical exam too. Before that, I had never been to a gynecologist. I was a kid with only a vague idea of what that even meant. So the staff at Provo had their favorites, always pretty girls, but I don't think it was about pretty. I think these people were weak on the outside, men and women who got off on the power they had over us. They would literally wake you up in the middle of the night and take you to the medical center and give you a quote unquote medical exam. And it was like horrible. And and one day the girls were all like, we have the keys. We have to break out. We're going to stab them with the booty juice and just like knock them all out and run. And of course they all turned each other in. And she's like, look, I get it. I would have turned them in too. I will say one thing that she makes herself out to be is not a rat. Yeah. She seems to have not ratted people out. Can I say, though, it makes you wonder, because she also does a lot of, like, it was impossible not to. It feels very Danny Trejo. I don't think she was a rat, and I don't think she wanted to hurt anybody. But in those rap sessions and things like that, like, you had to accuse people of shit. No, I think she was there, but I also do think, like, when people rat her out for trying to run away, she was the runner. Yeah. You are in for a treat, because support for today's episode comes from Jenny Kane. Think minimal meets luxury. Jenny Kane items are classic, comfortable, and California-inspired clothes from the cashmere or cotton knit sweater you're obsessed with to the flowy summer dress you never want to take off. With elevated everyday basics and wardrobe essentials, getting dressed is easier than ever before. When it comes to investing in an outfit that'll last, we choose Jenny Kane. For a limited time, our listeners get 15% off their entire order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code WORM to get 15% off. I have had a Jenny Kane cardigan on my list, on my must-buy list, for, I gotta say, months now. I have been trying to make this list so that I shop more thoughtfully, and every time I look at it, I think, Ashley, you have got to get that Jenny Kane sweater. I was so excited about it. I'm so happy to own it. I have this Jenny Kane cropped cashmere cardigan, and it is the softest thing I've ever owned. I feel like I have a new sense of self. I've never felt anything this soft before, and draping myself in it, I feel cared for by me. Everything about Jenny Kane is a downright stunning experience. Their website is the most aesthetically pleasing website I've ever been to. Their sweaters are it. You will get compliments. Everyone will want to feel your sleeve. The striped Chloe crew neck sweater, the cardigans, they're all made so that you can feel the difference. It's like that high-end necklace that you wear on repeat because it just goes with everything. Jenny Kane is known for their staple cashmere sweaters from their best-selling cocoon cardigan with a relaxed fit and an ultra-cozy silhouette to their lightweight and luxe fisherman sweater. Their core pieces that you can dress up or dress down all season long, and their cashmere sweaters pair perfectly with weekends or workdays, looking put together, layered, or solo. 
Simple, stylish, cozy, and chic, Jenny Kane is the modern minimalist style that makes you feel as good as you look. Find your forever pieces at JennyKane.com. Our listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code WORM at checkout. That's 15% off your first order, J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com, promo code WORM. The brand go-to for all season staples. Treat yourself because you deserve it. She talks about the party scene, having no agent, no manager, no stylist. She was just showing up and wearing what she liked, and it made headlines. The paparazzi were evolving with digital cameras and lightweight video equipment, which made it possible for them to get arable walk-and-talk film footage. Going out almost every night in LA and New York, I was getting a lot of attention, which I loved. It made me feel like a star. After that long period of never being allowed to look in the mirror, I enjoyed feeling beautiful. Instead of cussing or avoiding the pops like a lot of people did, I waved and called, hey, boys, and made sure they got good angles of me. I was just a teenager having fun without apology, without inhibition. That made fun people want to hang out with me. And when I showed up to a party with a crew of models, actors, and socialites, the paparazzi always followed. So pictures would show up in page six, people, or on online gossip blogs. Event planners really wanted me at their parties. And she starts to realize that she can monetize this. She's like, if my presence is worth something to you, prove it. I love feeling special, of course, but I started to make real money when I realized that I was an amplifier and attention was the power cord. I transformed attention into a marketable commodity to benefit brands I believed in, including my own. I always knew on some level that there was a difference between the kind of attention and love. But sometimes when love didn't come along, the constant clicking was an okay substitute. She talks about not realizing that she was essentially turning herself into a startup, but now she realizes it because she loves business books and she wishes she could have read her husband Carter's business book back when she was a startup. Now I'm kind of a business book addict. I make Carter Dragon extra carry-on so I can load up before a flight at the airport bookstore. I love that her bookstore of choice is Hudson News. <laughs> I'm sure I wasn't the first socialite to do the math on the party equation, but my experience and resolve gave me the nerve to ask. Making the ask is where so many entrepreneurial endeavors die. Pride gets in the way or the lame idea that that's not how it's always been done. My pride had been taken from me and I didn't know or care how things had been done in the past. I was doing everything in my power to burn my past to the ground. So I made the ask. She talks about one of her first events out, which goes to the Cannes Film Festival, where Harvey Weinstein does come after her. She locks herself into a women's bathroom, and he's banging on the door screaming, do you know who I am? She says later when the Me Too movement happened, people would say, have you ever had a Harvey Weinstein thing? And I said, nope. I was embarrassed by it. I have a pathological fear of embarrassment. I was afraid that if I shared that story, the next question would be, why didn't you speak up at the time? And I had no answer for that. And that's one of those questions that shifts the blame onto someone who shouldn't have to own it. And then she gets into a boy she started dating. His nickname was Scum. And one night, Scum wanted to videotape them having sex. She was not comfortable with it. But the truth is, I wanted to be alive in a sensual way. I wanted to feel like a woman who's comfortable in their own skin. And I was struggling to understand my sexuality. I don't remember that much about the night he wanted to make a videotape while we made love. He had often said it was something he did with other women. But I felt weird and uncomfortable about it. I always told him I can't. It's too embarrassing. But he kept pushing. No one else would ever see it. And then he told me if I wouldn't do it, he could easily find somebody who would. And that would be the worst thing I could think of, to be dumped by this grown man because I was a stupid kid who didn't know how to play grown-up games. And then she talks about how people think of her like as a sex symbol and a sex icon. And even though she likes that, she actually isn't very sexual and that she was raised by a Catholic mom who told her wait till marriage. And then also so much of it taken from her that it takes a lot for her to feel comfortable around person. Healing happens, but damage runs deep. I don't know if I'll ever be fully healed or fully who I might have been. Sex is a thought process for me. It has to start in my brain or it's not going to work. And then she like gives Carter credit, I guess, for foreplay. She gives Carter credit for like not forcing her to have sex or do things she's uncomfortable with. 
she had a lot of bad boyfriends and things she'd pushed herself to do to keep guys around. For a long time, I thought if somebody got so jealous, they threw a phone at your head or grabbed you and shook you till your neck bones rattled. Well, that just meant they really loved you, right? Ugh. She talks about style in the early 2000s. Heather was no barometer for what everyone should be wearing. Like all those TV shows shaming people for their clothes hadn't been existed yet. What not to wear, fashion police. And she's like, we just all had so much fun. So one day she's living in L.A. and she gets a call from David LaChapelle who wants to photograph her. She had done a commercial with him because like the model he was supposed to use hadn't showed up or something. And so she went right over and he really liked her. And he's like, let's do a shoot. They do the famous Vanity Fair shoot. They do it all over L.A. at the beach. She doesn't realize her nipple is poking out because the stylist posted it that way. And now she's like, well, I'm happy with how it came out. So I guess I'm glad I didn't know because I would have been nervous. And then for the grand finale, he's like, we have to go shoot in your grandparents' house. So they sneak into her grandparents' house while they're asleep. They do this chaotic photo shoot with a 16-year-old Nikki and 19-year-old Paris giving the FU sign in their grandparents' living room with their grandparents literally asleep upstairs. A few weeks later, they get a call that Vanity Fair wants to run the photos. And she's like, I didn't even know you sent it to Vanity Fair. And her parents are like, no fucking way. They're not allowed. And Vanity Fair is like, we have the model releases. You can't stop us. So then they compromise and they're like, well, if we can't stop you, can we at least do an article? I mean, and she says, she's like, you know, watching my parents get this upset about it gave me a little bit of a thrill. And so they do this interview that sounds like so fucking awkward because the whole thing is a lie. Their mom is talking over everyone. Kathy is completely commandeering it. And Paris is really annoyed. People want to be heard, said mom. They want to talk and chat. And I see people at parties doing this. And I think to myself, what are you doing? I didn't know who she was talking about, but I felt the need to defend myself. With Dolce on my lap for coverage, I said, I'm not just some party girl. Whatever people think I am, I have my own business. I do music and I'm fundraising for breast cancer because my grandmother is sick and I want people to know about all of that. Well then, mom said, speak up. I'm trying to, I said tightly, but you keep interrupting me. Oof. We glared at each other across the table, tied to each other like we were in a three-legged race. Shame bound us together in an unspoken pact. Don't tell anyone about the you-know-what. The article goes out, the photos come out, and those David LaChapelle photos are the inflection point where all that history tipped into the future. They opened a floodgate of opportunity for me, lifting my name from tabloids to A-list fame above and beyond the gossip economy. I mean, she's making cameos in movies. She's going to meetings at all these television studios. Eventually, Fox comes up with the idea for a little show we like to call The Simple Life. First, she asks her sister Nikki to do it with her, but Nikki said, don't be insane, you'll embarrass yourself. And Paris said, not if it's funny. And Nikki said, I don't want to be funny. I want to be classy. And that's how you know she's the favorite daughter. Yeah. I mean, Nikki (laughs) did everything right. She went to Sacred Heart. I don't think she went to college. None of these people go to college. But she would go on to marry a Rothschild. She has a fake fashion line, which is like the it rich girl thing to do. Yeah. So Paris calls up her old pal, Nicole, her friend who she'd been thick as thieves with forever and to this day. I will say one of the really sad parts of this book is Paris talking about who noticed that she was gone. She's like, why was everyone so quick to believe this London boarding school thing? The fact that I just disappeared off the face of the earth for two years. Were people asking questions? Did anyone wonder about it? She's like, if we were walking down the street and someone fell into a manhole, would you notice? I would notice if you fell into a manhole. Not for a while, though, because sometimes we talk and walk at different paces and then you're like way far ahead of me. Literally today, I looked up and you were 10 feet ahead of me. So she's dating this guy named Jason Shaw, who I guess was a big Calvin Klein model for a minute. And she said he was like the greatest, nicest guy, but she never told him any of the truth about her. She never had a real relationship. And she traveled 150 to 200 days a year, which is insane. At one point, it got up to 250 to 300 days a year in her 2010s. But she gets pregnant and decides to have an abortion, which was really hard for her because she was Catholic. And she goes, I'm only talking about it now because I don't want women to feel shame or alone. Over the years, I've looked back on all this with sorrow, even though I know I made the right choice. 
In my loneliest moments, I romanticized the entire time and tortured myself with the melodrama. Thoughts like, what if I had killed my Paris? What if Jason was the one who got away? But the fact is, there was no happy little family at stake. So she is doing the simple life. They are touring it everywhere. They're doing a ton of promotion. She's in Australia and she gets a call. There's a 30-second clip of you going viral on the internet. They didn't have that language back then, but going around the internet, having sex, and they're claiming that there's a larger tape. She obviously has a mental breakdown. She's in Australia. She's hysterically crying. She gets on a plane to come home. There's this nice woman on the plane next to her who's like, well, what's going on? Talk to me about it. And she opens up about everything. The next day, there's a huge article that comes out on Us Weekly, Paris Hilton exclusive, my side of the story. That's the second person we know who got tricked into telling their life story to a woman on the plane who was actually a reporter. How are these reporters picking their seats like that? I guess back in the day of tabloid, physical magazine stuff, there's a lot of money at stake so they could bribe people. Everything I wanted my brand to be, the trust and respect I was trying to rebuild with my parents, the sliver of self-worth I'd been able to recover, all of that was instantly in ruins. With my work on The Simple Life and the success of my new business, I'd cultivated an inner core of security and strength. Suddenly, I couldn't feel it anymore. I felt the old weight returning to my posture. During the previous three years, from the time I got out of Provo, I'd been trying to rebuild relationships with my siblings and mend the shattered bond between me and my parents. Now we were back to zero, left of zero, worse than ever. I didn't even know Fox was going to go ahead with The Simple Life. The knee-jerk reaction was to summon a pack of rabid lawyers, but the consensus was that lawsuits would only bring more attention. Mom's standard advice was don't give it oxygen. I will say that's her mom's go-to with everything, like never talk about it, never defend yourself, don't acknowledge it. And I think that that is a mentality that has caused her to suffer. Don't talk about it. Just send everything away. Like clearly that doesn't work. So she's like, what was I going to do? I went into hiding for a few weeks, but I couldn't go into hiding forever. The Simple Life was coming out. So she does that SNL skit with Jimmy Fallon where they're like, how much is it to be at the Paris Hilton? Is it roomy? Can you go through the back? Blah, blah, blah. Like I said, comedy gold. And I made a lifelong friend. Jimmy Fallon was so cool and so kind. This was another moment when I needed to be reminded that human kindness exists and he was here for it. I don't know if that was human kindness. He was using the hottest ticket of the moment on his TV show. Paris, if you're ever in a scandal and you want us to do a skit with you, we'd be happy to. That's not me being kind. Out of the kindness of my heart, I would let you do your first public appearance after a scandal here on CNBC. I'd be happy to exploit the power of your name. I'm nice. Because <laughs> I'm a good person. So she wants to make it clear, the release of that video cost me an insane amount of money and more important, it devastated my family and will never go away. It's out there waiting for my children who will be confronted with it someday. I think some people want to believe I was involved in the release of the tape or that I benefited in some way because it's unpleasant for them to think about the cruelty and complicity of their own response. Please hear me when I say I would never under any circumstances be involved in the production of an amateur teen porn video. And she's like, if I had done it, I would have owned it. Yeah, she makes a little joke about like, if I had made it, I would have had better lighting. But she says, I'm not judging any woman who does choose to do all that. I'm saying the choice was taken from me and it hurt me. Look, I'm not asking for anyone to feel sorry for me. I take full responsibility for the public and private choices I've made, and I'm not apologizing for any of it. I'm just saying there's plenty of shame to go around, and the girls have traditionally dealt with more than our fair share, and we're over it. I know I am, and I think Britt, Lindsay, Shannon, and the whole other lot of women probably agree. Girl shaming as a sport and industry needs to be over. Since women like me and Kim made Instagram our bitch, the kind of paparazzi that instantly killed Princess Diana has all but disappeared and it'll never be that way again. There's still a market for candid pictures of celebs. Ultimately, it's about supply and demand, and the demand is what it always was. You can trace it back to Helen of Troy, but now the supply is up to me. The rise of selfie culture isn't about vanity. It's about women taking back control of our images and our self-images, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I agree and disagree. Like, I don't think you can say, like, selfie culture flattened out is because people were going to steal photos of us anyway. I do think, like, social media has changed the way, like, the paparazzi she's come up with. Yes. 
And I think social media has democratized pop culture in a way. Yes. And obviously I'm on her side when I think about the fact that she was like literally a teenager and the horror and she talks about how everyone for the rest of her life, that's something that's used to diminish her that people are like, well, you would have never been successful without that tape. And she's like, maybe, but now we'll never know because that was robbed from me. And she's like, the fact that revenge porn wasn't illegal and that that guy was like, well, I'm allowed to make money off of this is my property. I mean, it's horrible and revenge porn should be illegal. I do think she very smartly takes these moments where she was done very wrong by society in these public ways and uses it to wash over everything she ever did. I don't know that like her whole life and her whole existence in public guy is above scrutiny or like a larger class criticism. Yeah. But she takes these moments where she's definitely in the right and is like, so pretty fucked up that you guys treated me like shit. And it's like, okay, but a lot of what you stood for was bad. The idea that Kim Kardashian's presence on social media can't be criticized or questioned is ridiculous. So the Simple Life is a massive hit. She becomes huge. She like works her little butt off. She's touring, traveling the world. Her house gets broken into all the time. And the first time that her house gets broken into is when she meets her publicist and good friend, Elliot Mintz. Elliot Mintz is an interesting person who I would like a memoir from. He was best friends with Yoko Ono, and he is like publicist to the stars. He's been up and down with everybody. And he goes, what's your plan? What's your wish, your ambition? I ask all my clients this. What do you want to achieve? I didn't lie. I said, I want to be famous. I want people to know who I am, to be aware of me, and I want them to like me so I can sell them things. My product lines, Nikki's product lines, designers, makers, anything I like. If I say something is beautiful, then they know it's beautiful. If I go to a club or spa or resort, then everybody wants to go there. I want people to appreciate my opinion as a tastemaker, as an icon, and I want to monetize that like a lot. He helped me figure out a philosophy that grounded me in the middle of a firestorm that I'd started. In terms of crisis management, Elliot gave me the same advice he gives all of his clients. Don't lie. Learn from Clinton and Nixon. You're better off if you just cop to it and move on. He also says there has to be a there there. It can't be all about the sale. There has to be work above the promotion of the work. And he's like, and that's how you have longevity. And he's like, you're not an athlete. You don't have five years to cash out. Think long term. Eventually, the sales pitch dies out and what's left has to be still valuable. She talks about being on the cover of Playboy, which was not something she agreed to. We'll tell that story on social media. And she says, you know, I screwed up sometimes. I said some things I wouldn't say now. I hurt people's feelings and I'm sorry. I drank a lot and had some unfortunate moments. Some I can laugh about, others not so much. I'm not going to wallow in any of that here. I'm not offering explanations or asking anyone to explain themselves to me. So no walk of shame here. Sorry, not sorry. The only people who don't screw up are people who never do anything. Once again, I agree the only people who never screw up are the people who never do anything, but I do think that when you screw up, you can apologize. She then gets into a conversation about a South Park episode about her where she is obviously painted very poorly. It's called Stupid Spoiled Whore Video Play Set. I'm the title character, but they also apply that epithet to Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Tara Reid. I think in this book, she really lumps herself in with Britney a lot because Britney is the victim du jour in the way that she's like, and me too. We were both treated so equally badly. I'm kind of like, okay, you have to stand on your own feet. So she talks a lot about the way that it's so hack and cheap to just belittle women. And I agree with that. And she says, how do we not see that the treatment of it girls translates to the treatment of all girls in our culture? And she's like, I love South Park, but how do they not see how what they do has a larger impact? And then she uses this as another example, an episode where Cartman's one wish is to watch Selena Gomez get beat up. Process that script with me for a second. A teenage girl is brought in to be beaten for the gratification of the protagonist. Someone beats her and then says, all right, get her the fuck out of here, as if the girl they've just assaulted is a piece of garbage to be disposed of. That's the bar now. And I agree, that is pretty horrible. I don't think Paris Hilton, again, is above criticism. And I mean, as you were talking about, she very proudly is like, I created this character, the dumb blonde, the rich, spoiled brat. 
People love to hate. They love to love. Whatever it is, it's a version of myself that I put out there in order to sell an idea to then sell products to make money. And at what point when you're like willingly creating this character and putting it out there, do you have to accept that you're going to be criticized when you know you're playing a parody? I think this book does a really incredible job of saying like I've created this image to develop my own platform and with that platform I want these kids to not be tortured anymore. Like that's what she's saying but that's not where we were when this episode came out. To say how we treat it girls in the media is gonna go down to how real women are treated every day. I agree with that 100%. I do wonder then Paris what was like your responsibility to not push to the number one photographed woman this image of a dumb bimbo sex girl. You did create that girl and you did go up there and you did create this thing like, isn't it great to be rich and skinny and white and party hard and be so sexy and be so slutty? Like that was the image that you threw out there. And I wonder if you think you had any responsibility for how that would trickle down as well. I mean, that's the other thing is like finding out about the Provo school and realizing how much of the simple life was full on acting. Like she knew how to clean toilets. She had done it for years. I mean, she actively wants to be like the richest, most famous woman in the world. And she's looking at people like Princess Diana and people like Marilyn Monroe. And it's like you want to be talked about. You want South Park to do an episode about you. And I agree with what she says here. I'm sad that Matt and Trey went that route. Sexualized bashing of young women is worse than politically incorrect. It's dangerous and it's boring. It's a failure of imagination. She talks about saying that she voted for Trump and she says, the truth is actually worse. I didn't vote at all. And she's like, I'm just growing and learning every day. And I'm like, okay, that was, you were like 36. <laughs> People evolve. We have the capacity to learn. I mean, she like lumps in a lot of her wrongdoings into one paragraph. Yeah, like the use of slurs and wearing a Von Dutch hat. She's like, I made a lot of mistakes back then. I'm like, those are different mistakes. <laughs> those are different mistakes. Like I said, a lot could have been done with an apology. But then she gets into around this time, somebody bought her old storage unit. And in it, there was medical records, tapes, and he put everything online. And it felt like an assault again. Robbing a woman of her right to privacy is a physical and psychological assault. People do this kind of thing all the time and don't want to think of themselves as rapists, but that's what they are. I've survived it over and over again in different forms. The man who roofied me, the orderlies who molested me, the ex who released the sex tape, and every person who watched it, and this. Those people are overpowered me and chained me down with the shame and humiliation that rightfully belong to them. So once again, she is couching her wrongdoings in a little hot dog bun of things that are objectively wrong. And then she says the guy who did that, Elliot, had a heart to heart with him one day about taking it down. And then the next day, the guy hanged himself. And she goes, karma's a bitch. And I'm like, okay, what happened there? I don't think your publicist had a heart to heart, made somebody realize they were a bad guy and he ended it all. I would have left that sentence out if I were you. Because <laughs> it raised more questions than it answered. So then she gets into the evolution of technology. She gets a cell phone and then a sidekick and then Twitter is invented. Once she's on Twitter, she realizes that when she talks about certain products, they sell out. So people start sending her free products, the first ever celeb PR haul. And she has so many things in her closet that she hires her friend Kim to come organize her closet for her. Kim was also at the forefront of technology, knowing how to use eBay. Paris says one of the things that bugs me the most, which is when people act like using apps is being at the forefront of technology. Nothing made me angrier than we were calling themselves a technology company. I'm like, it's just rent. And Paris is like, I was always at the forefront of technology. I was on Instagram very early. And I'm like, that's not the forefront of technology. You did not invent your early adopter of online trends. One of the technologies she gets really into is the technology of DJing. And she's like, this is how I can get paid even more to party forever. Yeah. So she gets the idea to become a DJ when she goes to Ibiza with Kim Kardashian. 
and she sees how the DJing makes her feel alive. She's always loved to dance all night, but in Ibiza, it clicks. She says, DJing, I'm going to be up there someday. And sure enough, one day she had a residency there at that very DJ booth. She's getting paid up to a million dollars a night to DJ. Can you even imagine? I literally can't. Then she gets a DUI. It's 2006, September 7th, around three in the morning. She was done getting glam, had a margarita with the team. And she's like, I hadn't eaten anything all day. So I guess I technically blew a 0.08, which is exactly the legal limit. The, every DUI we've read about is exactly at the legal limit. You guys don't understand. They had one tiny little sip of alcohol and just coincidentally hit the legal limit. And she's like, if I had eaten, I probably wouldn't even been that bad. She was like, I was in the drive through to get food. If I had just gotten my food, it probably wouldn't have been that bad. One margarita probably fucks Paris Hilton up. She weighs like 98 pounds. Okay, so she gets a DUI. She gets in there. They give her three years probation and suspend her license. And she's very like gracious about it. She goes, fair enough. I accepted that even if they were stretching to charge me with a DUI. There have been times I mean, I probably was over the limit and didn't get caught. Pause for an important message. Don't drink and drive. It's stupid and dangerous and it will fuck you up. Even if you don't feel drunk, just don't go there. So three months later, she does her community service. Her license is unsuspended to go to and from work. And it turns out, actually, it's not. Nobody did the proper paperwork for her to have the limit. And she's like, something so stupid. My lights weren't on. And I was speeding. And I'm like, okay, they pulled you over for a reason. They don't just like randomly pull over Paris Hilton. So she was speeding. Her lights weren't on. She's like, but it was a bright street. So I didn't really need lights anyway. (laughs) So she's speeding. Her lights aren't on. She's going to and from work. But the paperwork hadn't been filed that actually gave her permission to go to and from work. So she is... Speeding, no lights on, suspended license. And they sentence her to 45 days in jail, which is unreasonably harsh. And the judge makes it his personal vendetta to charge her. It's his last week before he retires. Apparently when he went to church the next week, he got like a standing ovation for putting Paris behind bars. She says all of a sudden after that DUI, the energy changed. It wasn't this fun flirty like, hello paparazzi. They were out for blood and people were mad at her. She says she'd never felt this like collective anger against her before. And when her lawyer tried to revoke it and just get her house arrest, which I guess is more standard, the judge came out of retirement to be like, no, jail. So she goes to jail. And as all celebrities have to do, they're considered unsafe around the regular population. She goes to like a maximum security jail and is in solitary confinement 23 hours a day, which is horrible, especially for somebody with PTSD from a horrible jail high school. So she actually goes to regular population jail where she's having massive panic attacks and PTSD. Then her lawyer tries to get her house arrest and they grant her house arrest. And then the judge comes back out of retirement and is like, no, she has to be in regular jail. Fuck that. And she's like, what the hell? And the thing is, obviously, Paris Hilton is not the most wronged by our justice system. We've got a really bad situation in place. She's not the worst off, but it is just like disheartening to be like, oh, Paris Hilton got 45 days and Brock Turner got like a minute and a half. The way it's arbitrary is just, I hate reading it. I hate knowing it. So she's in jail and she's like, I huddled on my small cot, hugging my knees to my chest to make myself go to that place I used to go during those long hours in OBS, my beautiful world. I was not surprised to check in and find that overwhelmingly the life I was living was very much the life I had visualized. What didn't make sense was how I could be having so much fun and feel so little satisfaction. I had everything I wanted, but it wasn't enough. Maybe there's no such thing as enough. And my only salvation was just to keep grinding, do more projects, date more guys. So she gets out after 23 days because of good behavior. And she's like, I realized that I had been playing this character. They loved her or hate her, which was just as marketable. I leaned into that character and my ticket to financial freedom and a safe place to hide. I made sure I had never had a quiet moment to figure out who I was without her. I was afraid of that moment because I didn't know what I would find. 
So she's released. She can't even go back home anymore because the paparazzi is so bad. She has to move to a new house in a gated community. And she's like coming out of jail. It was the end of an era. And I remember that. I remember like she came out of jail and it's just like the Paris Hilton bubble had burst. And then I guess there was a recession. So then she talks about how much she loves music festivals, especially the Neon Carnival at Coachella. I don't really think we need to get into that. She talks about the bling ring and how she was honored to be part of the Sofia Coppola shoot at her actual house. She is game for anything, though. One thing about her is there is no boundary. Yeah. She wants to be part of a moment. She has her residency in Ibiza. She becomes a world-class DJ. So this is kind of when she disappeared from the United States. She was kind of a Y2K relic in America. And I think she was just traveling the world DJing. Yeah. I mean, she made $3 billion on fragrances in Asia and Europe. She has like all these retail stores. She's just huge overseas, which is honestly, I think the best thing to be because then you can come home and just be free. The nightmares never left me, but going to jail for 23 days took them to a new level. It was real again, immediate, physical, dangerous. I didn't just wake up screaming. I woke up struggling for air as if I were trapped at the bottom of a muddy river. And at this point, she discovers Reddit and she finds that there are people who are reconnecting and sharing their experiences in CDU schools on Reddit, but she's afraid to join in. She's so afraid to like reveal herself and to talk about it because for two years, it was beaten to her consciousness that no one cared, no one would believe her, none of it mattered. My brand was more important than my business. It was my identity, my strength, my self-respect, my independence, my whole life. I had to protect my brand. Anything off brand, no. Circle with a slash, can't have that. So she keeps working. TikTok and Instagram made it easy for me to pretend my life was a perfect fairy tale, but in fact, my fairy tale life is the one that didn't happen. Elite prep school, Ivy League college, graduate studies abroad, a career in animal science, a nice husband and children, all that disappeared before I had a chance to even imagine it. And now I was trapped inside the simple life caricature. This is me, but not really person who was out in the world living my life. Social media became the new reality. Selves became selfies. Privacy was commodified. I don't feel that bad for you, Nikki said after I broke up with someone I hardly remember. If you wanted kids and wanted a husband, you would find a way to make it happen. Maybe you don't want it. You think society expects that of you, but it's a huge responsibility. If you don't genuinely want it, you shouldn't do it. And she's like, but I did want it. She had kept so many secrets about herself for so long. And she's like, at this point, even Nikki didn't know what I had gone through in that high school. So she starts considering another reality series or documentary. And a producer says, I went down kind of a rabbit hole. A lot of the information about you is very unflattering and critical. I started thinking about the audience consuming all those articles. We spent 20 years obsessing about Paris Hilton, gossiping about the Hilton sisters, but you weren't talking about yourselves. We were all having that conversation. But every time a scandal broke, the family did this circling of the wagons. So it is true. I mean, her mom said, like, don't give it oxygen. So if you look at the internet history, it's all like lore about the Hiltons. And so she allows this woman to do this documentary called This Is Paris that came out a couple years ago. And the idea was to do girl boss shit. Like, this is what it's like running a global empire. And I guess they were following her around and it was pretty boring because finally the director comes into her room and is like, I'm just going to be here with a handheld camera. I'm just going to follow you all night and watch you. And of course, Paris doesn't sleep. So she's up all night. It's 4 a.m. And finally, she starts explaining what it's like in her head and why she can't sleep and starts opening up about the provost stuff. In my dreams, I never wake up refreshed. I'm so fucking tired. I'm just literally my mind is going through what the upcoming months are and it's nonstop. She starts talking about what happened to her in her childhood and the director is like, this is what we need to dive into. And they clashed a lot. She was like, I don't want to go there. And the director is like, we need to reunite you with some of the other Provo kids. And that's what the documentary becomes about. The scariest moment of the whole process was sitting down with my mom and talking to her about what really happened, studying the expression on her face. I saw disbelief at first and then shock and then deep sadness. All the times I cried for her, so many terrifying nights and miserable days when my heart kept sobbing, mom, mom, mom. It's as if she heard it all at once. 
Overwhelmed, she covered her face, pressing her fingers against her forehead, silent for a long time. Then she looked up again. Her face was composed and pretty, a mask of grace under pressure. She had to process it in her own way. Privately, we haven't sorted through it all. I don't know if we ever will. Publicly, her willingness to talk about it shows astonishing courage. Her presence sends a simple, powerful message. Mom's here. So then she talks about meeting Carter. She met Carter in the fall of 2019. She had never done Thanksgiving with her parents. She just never really wanted to. And finally, she was just getting tired of the club scene and traveling and like kind of started craving a family. So she goes to spend Thanksgiving with her family in the Hamptons. And she goes with her mom to meet some other people. So she goes and she meets Carter. And he remembers her from all these parties. And she's like, I did not remember him at all. But he talked to her and they talked about business and she really liked him. They kissed that night. It's really cringy listening to the story. She's like, I told him I get what I want and I kissed him, blah, blah, blah. And then they go to New York and they just have a bottle of wine and talk all night. And she's like, he's the first person I ever actually told my truth to about Provo and about everything. And we had this relationship that was built on truth. She had never had that before. COVID happens and they got to have this amazing like quarantine where they just did normal stuff where she cooked and they just played house and she loved it. And she's like, I heard COVID was like bad for other people, though. So sorry. (laughs) They have their wedding and then they start doing IVF. They do IVF for two years. And she said it was just so hard because her sister kept getting pregnant. Her sister-in-law kept getting pregnant. Everybody's getting pregnant. And she's like, whenever I wear a push-up bra, people would be like, is Paris pregnant? And she's like, you can't imagine how hard it is to have people asking you if you're pregnant when you're desperate to be pregnant and can't be, which is something we also heard in Gabrielle Union's memoir. Just don't speculate about people being pregnant. And then, of course, they had their baby via surrogate. His name is Phoenix because she wanted a girl named London, but that didn't work out. So they settled for a boy named Phoenix. Yeah, now she's doing her best to be herself. With each passing year, it matters less and less to me how other people love, hate, adore, or dismiss me. Weirdly, it makes me feel closer to understanding people in general. I'm not saying I'm just like you. I'm trying to say that I see you and I think it's possible that we know each other better than one might think. I have secrets like every other woman in the world. Like every other woman in the world, I've had terrible things happen to me and I've come out on the other side. I know we're supposed to spin terrible things to make it sound like they're actually good, but that's bullshit. The heart attack did not save your life. Cancer is not a gift. Your abuser did not give you strength. Terrible things are terrible. Let's just acknowledge it. If you found strength and wisdom or a new way of thinking, that's awesome. But notice that strength, wisdom, and the new worldview came out of you, which means it was inside of you to begin with. Okay, final thoughts? You know, I liked this book. I think it was readable. It was funny. It was honest. I think that there are obviously little moments that are like very cleverly done to avoid certain topics. I think always she'll first and foremost be a business. Always. But I also think some of the things that this book will do, I I mean, she's going to Washington regularly to speak out against these schools. I think she does good things and she's a flawed person. I agree. And I think that the potential of help with this book outweighs the other parts for me. I mean, I think it's up for disagreement. I wouldn't say that that's the absolute truth, but I do feel like she had this incredible story to tell and share. And I think using her platform and sharing her story will affect a lot of change for the better. Nobody can say that's not a horrible thing to go through. Yeah. So for that, I commend her. I also thought it was very readable. I think it's great that what's good for society, her speaking out is also good for her. And in that synergy, she has found a book And I'm not going to sit here and pretend like it's not helping her brand to come out with this. I looked back and now I'm ready to use my power for good branding. But I also think like, great, may we all look back and use our power for good. I also think she did a really good job of including all of the little elements that we want from a memoir. There are very serious topics in this book, but she also gives us the saucy celeb stories that the press is going to bite on. She also gives us the like quirky little Paris moments 
there are so many elements to this book that I think you like want from a memoir that we get in so few of them. It basically ends after 2007. Post jail, it kind of wraps up. And I respect that because I do think at the age she's at, she can look back to her 28th year or whatever and be like, here was the sum of those parts. And I like that the rest was kind of a catch up because I think that that's what she can look back on, like having processed and thought about. Yes. Anyway, we love you guys so much. I can't wait to see you at the live shows. What will we talk about this week on the Patreon? Oh my God. This week we are talking about the Cole Sprouse call her Papa episode. I want to do a deep dive on the Bill Hader dickmatizing. Yeah. We'll talk about all the fun stuff. We love you guys so much. And who do we love the most? Thank you so much to Rona, Elise, Lenore Backwards. I'm not going to lie. I don't think I read that right. But whatever letters you're jumbling together, I appreciate. Thank you to Tyler Miami. Ooh, baby. I can't wait to uh, party in Miami. Thank you to Maj Podge. This is the stickiest, sweetest review. Thank you to Handy Manny 99 I would let you uh, help me do a DIY any day. Thank you to Bink Narfus. I appreciate you more than Lesfis. Thank you, 127462867483. That's the perfect number for me to adore. Thank you, MaxCraft430. I appreciate your craftiness. Thank you to Jay Chapstick. I love how moisturized you are. And thank you to Cora Windmoller, the sweetest, breeziest tooth I've ever met. That's all. Thank you, guys. I love you.